This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano. loves to get down on talk radio, right? Uh, certain people of uh, certain political persuasions say it's a forum for extremists. Uh, people who prefer listening to podcasts and things like that say that it's a medium that is dominated by older listeners and uh, somehow their opinions count less or the fact that they're listening counts less because that's not the uh, demographic that advertisers most prize. Other people say, oh, it's boring. Other people say, oh, it's repetitive. And look, I have been, yeah, as someone that's a lifelong fan of talk radio, very critical of a lot of the things that go on in the world of talk radio because I feel like it's capable of so much more. That being said, Over the last 48 hours, I would say the job that talk radio, including the stations that I'm on right now, have done in covering this uh, Memphis situation has been exemplary. I have heard hosts of varying political persuasions. Uh, I have heard commentators, experts give give the facts, give their opinion really do a great job highlighting actuality and audio from newsmakers and give all sorts of callers of varying views an opportunity to have their voices heard. I think in some respects, talk radio has done a far better job covering this Memphis story than any other medium. And obviously, by now you know the story. Tyree Nichols died on January 10th in Memphis after five officers beat him during an arrest, and the body camera and surveillance footage that was released on Friday shows officers repeatedly punching, kicking, and pepper spraying Nichols, as well as striking him with a baton and shocking him with tasers. And afterward, as he's laying on the ground, the police officers, now former police officers, they failed to render aid, and instead some of them smoked cigarettes. And they're talking almost as if they just came from a sporting event or something. So um, I'm not going to be able to say anything about this Memphis situation that hasn't already been said. I'm not going to be able to add much on this Memphis situation that hasn't already been said. But I'll tell you why I'm bringing this up. And I'm not going to do this whole show on Memphis because, honestly, I'm not sure how much there is for me to add. But. There are two aspects of this that I do I do want to bring up, maybe three. One is I have read I was out to dinner on Friday when the, and I was on the way to dinner when this video was released. And then I was driving home from dinner, listening to a lot of great coverage on talk radio from people like Dominic Carter, Curtis Lewa, others. And I was uh, my wife maybe changed the channel because she was so disturbed by a lot of the descriptions and a lot of the audio that was played. 
So I made the decision after reading when I got up Saturday morning to re- go through all the morning papers. I made the decision not to watch any of this video, not to seek it out, not to watch this man dying uh, as he's crying for his mother at being beaten and not to watch it. I, I thought to myself, look, I'm not a lawyer. I'm not an expert in policing. I'm not a criminal criminologist. I am confident that the authorities and the jury in this case is going to be able to make the right decision. And if they are or they're not, it's not going to be because I've watched the video or not. So maybe it's um, maybe it's I don't know. Maybe I'm not doing my job as somebody that occasionally comments on world affairs by not watching the video. But I'll be honest, I have no interest whatsoever in seeing what I think what amounts to a uh, a snuff film or a uh, really a, a a a fight club video on the streets of Memphis. And my first question for you is if you've seen the video. And I've seen clips because you can't watch the news and I uh, I've seen uh, I saw Smirconish on CNN on Saturday, I saw a little bit of CBS Sunday morning on Sunday. And they play a couple of seconds here and there. But so far, I am not going to watch any of this video. I'm not going to seek out. If if some of it is exposed to me, then it's fine. But I'm not going to go out and watch this video. And my question for you at 800-848-9222, that's 800-848-9222, is is there any value? Um, Because I was listening to another show last hour, and I heard a caller say he hasn't watched the video either. Is there any value at all to me or maybe people like me who are in a similar situation who don't want to see this video of a man being beaten as he's running away, crying for his mother as he's 100 yards from her house? Is there any value in watching it? Am I missing anything by not watching it? Because I've read the descriptions. I've read all the articles. And I think I have a pretty thorough understanding of what's in it. Am I missing anything? 800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-9222. I also want to discuss a little bit about um, race because we've heard a lot of discussion in the media and elsewhere that this is – that race should be considered even though these five now former police officers were black and it's still an example of racist policing because – It's the system going after another black guy. Uh, Al Sharpton said some version of that. He said they wouldn't have been able to do this to a white guy. I heard Anthony Weiner over the weekend say some version of that. I'm paraphrasing here. But it really is very interesting because the aspect of race that I'd like to focus on is not whether that this was racist on the part of the police and did they go after this guy because he was black. But the issue I'd like to explore is the fact that all five of these police officers was black, were black. Does that play any role here? Now, before you say that this is me being racist, let me give you some context and some information. So the this is a city, Memphis, that has been trying to reform its police department. They um, all five of the cops here who were subsequently fired and charged with crimes, were black. And by the way, some people are saying they were overcharged. I was listening to Michael Smirkanish and uh, Ellie Honig, and uh, they were saying that uh, they think 
second-degree murder is too stiff a charge. They think that this is a manslaughter conviction. They don't think second-degree murder is an appropriate charge. I'm not a lawyer. I don't know, and I don't know what the statute with respect to second-degree murder is in um, in Tennessee. But so all these cops were black, as is the city police chief, and is uh, as is a majority of Memphis police officers. Now, that's not unprecedented. In police violence cases, three of the six officers who were charged and eventually cleared in the death of Freddie Gray seven years ago or eight years ago were black. But cases like this do raise questions about how much the race of police officers affect how they do their job. Um, The race of the officers is definitely at the forefront of everyone's mind. Speaking about the officers who face charges for the murder of her son, the mother of Tyree Nichols told CNN, quote, they have brought shame to their own families. They brought shame to the black community. I just feel sorry for them. I really do. And Sharpton has basically said the same thing, that these people are a disgrace to their race. Meanwhile, the chief of police, C.J. Davis, Told the uh, told CNN that the fact that the officers were black takes race off the table, but it does indicate to me this is the police chief speaking that bias might be a factor also in the manner in which we engage the community. So this gets at the idea that this incident was beyond the identity of individual officers, and uh, they're saying that this points to deeper systemic issues within the department. And these are themes that people smarter than me have talked about a great deal. There is some research that suggests the presence of black officers can reduce violence and other negative police encounters. But I'll be honest, the research findings are pretty mixed. There was a study released this month by the Ford School Center for Racial Justice at the University of Michigan that notes that while a lot of early research found weak links between race of officers and their conduct, much of it didn't account for the fact that black officers are often assigned high crime areas with larger numbers of black people. Recent paper they cite found that black officers make far fewer discretionary stops of black civilians. Those researchers concluded that if you account for different patrol assignments, black officers appear to be less likely to stop, arrest, and use force against civilians, especially black ones. They also appear to be more responsive to black crime victims than their white counterparts. There's going to be a lot of people looking at the role of uh, discretionary stops and what role they play here. But this is what I wanted to mention. There are studies that find the exact opposite of what I just said, that black cops are as likely or in some cases even more likely to discriminate against black citizens and that fatal force can even increase with the proportion of black officers. One Harvard Law Review paper called Policing Our Own notes that black officers can harbor what they refer to in this Harvard paper as same-race bias and may try to conform to the cultural norms of their departments by over-policing black people. In that piece, the officers raise the concern that racial diversity without meaningful reallocations or redistributions of power might not only limit the possibilities for, you know, improvements in this area, but also 
potentially reproduce and legitimize uh, some of the in inequality that people have been trying to rectify when it comes to policing issues for years. The Center for Policing Equity pointed out in a statement after uh, Nichols was killed, any officer working in policing risks finding themselves engaged in behavior that is racist in nature, even if they do not personally hold racist beliefs or are themselves black. And, you know, I reread a lot of the coverage on that. I I read that Harvard Law Review paper, Policing Our Own, because it got me thinking. I know a lot of police officers of varying ethnicities, uh, Arab, white, black. And I really do think if you're a white police officer in this day and age, you're almost, it doesn't matter what jurisdiction you're working in, you're almost paralyzed by not wanting to end up on a viral social media video or be arrested or get a lawsuit or be disciplined. And it does lead to what they call sometimes the Ferguson effect of less aggressive policing. And I do wonder if these officers were white instead of black, would you have seen a different result? And I realize that's an uncomfortable question to ask, and I realize there's no way to know. But I think it is helpful to ask the question in terms of preventing the next tragedy like this. I really believe that. Meaning, if there are five white cops and the guy, Tyree Nichols, abandons his car, he runs away. He runs away from his car. The cops have the car. Would the white cops have said, all right, we have the car. Let's see who it belongs to and let's go and uh, make an arrest. Or would they have taken out their tasers and their pepper spray and their batons and all and chased after this guy and beat him to a pulp while he was, uh, you know, calling for his mother or uh, his mother. I think those white cops might have been fearful knowing that there's cameras everywhere, including the ones they're wearing. I think those white cops might have been pretty fearful of getting in serious trouble. And I do wonder if there is more likely to be aggressive policing when you have black cops here. Now, what's the solution? I'm not suggesting that we don't have black cops. Of course not. But I do wonder if there is another alternative to this. You know, I was talking with uh, Curtis Lee off air about the Scorpion unit, which was disbanded as a result of this. And um, he made a pretty persuasive case that uh, that was probably a, a mistake that uh, they should not have disbanded the Scorpion unit and that this is going to allow the criminals to run free in the streets of Memphis. The other thing I'll ask, and then I'll take your calls on any aspect of this, meaning are black police officers more likely to engage in police police brutality, number one. Number two, is there any value at all in me watching this video? But here's the other question. These cops, as was widely reported, they were hired after the city of Memphis lowered their standards. And they lowered their standards about needing either an associate's degree or a certain number of college credits. They lowered it. I think uh, I don't remember the exact number of credits you used to need, but it was lowered. And several of the uh, police police officers in Memphis would probably not have been hired under the prior more stringent standards. Now, why did they do that? They lowered that because they were having a tough time with recruitment. There are, as we've covered, a variety of reasons 
why police departments around the country are having a tough time recruiting people. But you know where they're not? Westchester, Suffolk County, Nassau County, places like that. Why? Because these people, officers in those places, are very well paid. So I'm wondering if this is another chicken and the egg situation where if Memphis Police Department officers, police officers earned as much as Westchester County Police Department officers did, you would have, I believe, people lined up to take the test to become a Memphis cop. And there would be no shortage of very qualified applicants under more stringent standards. And um, I don't think they would have needed to lower the standards in order to meet the recruitment goals. So I do wonder if some of this can be tied to not paying police officers adequately. So those are kind of my three questions. One, is there any value in me watching this video? Two, um, what do you think there's anything to this theory as put it in this Harvard Law Review paper, indicating that black police officers are more likely to engage in aggressive policing, especially of black people. And three, if we paid police officers more, would that lead to a better quality of cop in departments around the country? So feel free to uh, take those questions as you like. 800-848-9222. And we're not going to do the whole show about this because... Like I said, one, it's depressing. And two, I think a lot. everybody has said uh, people much more intelligent than I am have made much more observant remarks than I ever could. All right, let me begin with Mike from Parts Unknown. Hello, Mike. Parts Unknown, I'm laughing every time. <laughs> That's funny. Hey, Frank, how you doing? Always a good show. Thanks. Hope all mine's well and yada, yada. Um, you know, I like Dominic Carter a lot. He went to Cortland, of course. He's been on the air 30 years, and I had a feeling, you know, I, I zonked out earlier. I woke up like 1230, and I, I had a feeling he'd get a barrage of nonsense. He, he's, he's my take in, in my 68, soon to be 69, okay? Uh, I got a lot of friends retired in YTD, Nassau County. I have, a, uh, I have a, a good friend of mine, okay? I know him for years. Um, his son is a state trooper upstate, and anybody who's a cop, because of the likes of uh, 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 BS artist Al Sharpton, phony reverend, you know, and no justice, no peace. I sit on somebody's show. He couldn't hold the overcoat of the late, great Martin Luther King. And you've got others. Right, Mike, just, just stay focused on this and the issues that I raised, if you can, here. Go ahead. Go ahead. No, you go ahead. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Thanks. Thanks. Okay. It's getting to the point where you got other people like Colin Kaepernick who say white cops killing blacks. It's getting to the point. I don't know. I've met four cops down here in Myrtle Beach. Wait, Mike, I'm not, I'm not following how any of this has anything to do with any of the questions that I raised. I'm trying to, Frank, Frank, it's getting out of control. There is no answer why. Do black cops feel comfortable being a cop? Does a cop feel comfortable being a cop? You know what? They hyped this video so much. I, I watched it. I watched every minute of it. And it's despicable. Okay? It's despicable. That's my point. Am I covering my base? All right. right. Thank you, Mike. Appreciate it. 
800-848-9222. Yeah, just to reiterate the three questions that I'd kind of like to focus on here. One, I haven't watched this video, right? And I have no interest in watching kind of real-life violence like this. And I'm not – I don't see the value to me in doing so, right? Am I wrong? Is there some value in watching it? 800-848-922. Two, do do black police officers have a higher likelihood of engaging in police brutality against black people? And if so, what do you do about that, right? If anything, is it just a reflection of better training? And three, what role does police officer compensation play in this? If every police department paid what the Westchester County Police or the Suffolk County Police paid, would they need to lower standards? And if they didn't lower standards, would you have people that are unqualified for the department joining it? 800-848-9222. All right. we'll, We'll continue with your calls in a moment. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Marano. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. Yes, it's over. Call it a day. Sorry that it had to end this way No reason to pretend We knew it had to end someday This way Guess it's over The kids are gone What's the use of trying to Johnny Mathis, too much, too little, too late. Uh, This song was actually um, suggested to me by a listener. I love Johnny Mathis, always have. All right, uh, talking a little bit about the uh, situation in Memphis. Not spending the whole show on this, but uh, I am particularly interested in three different aspects of this. One, should I watch the video? Uh, My inclination is no. Two, what role does the fact that these cops were black play in how they behaved? Number three, if you pay cops more, does it make incidents like this less likely to occur? Here was uh, Al Sharpton on uh, Saturday. Did you think because you was black we wouldn't say nothing? Did you think that you would hide behind your blackness? I want to say loud and clear that we will fight black cops, white cops, any color cops that commit crimes against us. I'm glad that he said that for two reasons. One, if he was quiet. Right. You would have had a whole bunch of people like the fellow that called me on Friday and said, hey, where's Al Sharpton now? Is it because the cops are black that he's not saying anything? Well, to his credit, he's doing exactly the same kind of thing uh, that he's do- he would be doing if these cops were white. The other thing, obviously, is the protests and the demonstrations, for the most part, 
all weekend about this, especially Friday night. Why they released this video on a Friday night, I, I don't understand. I would think this uh, that would be the kind of the worst time that you could release a video. But okay. Um, I think the demonstrations were very respectful and polite, primarily because they were not white cops. And I think if they were white cops, you would have had things much more like the the Larry, the uh, Rodney King situation in Los Angeles and uh, riots that were much more violent. So thankfully, that wasn't the case. Uh, I had I had interviewed uh, Jerry Spence before. Jerry Spence is probably the most accomplished attorney, trial attorney in the country, especially when it comes to criminal law. When it comes to both being a prosecutor, which he's been, and being a defense attorney, he has not lost a case in which the a jury has decided the verdict in, I don't think ever, but at least in 60 years. And I interviewed him maybe about five or six years ago. And we were talking about his book, and he has a book called Police State. And it's all about police misconduct. How America's Cops Get Away with Murder. That's what it's called. And we had a lengthy interview about this book and the cases he profiles. I'm not going to get into every one of the cases. But this is how Jerry Spence kind of framed the question about policing in America today. The thing that we need to understand, however, is that what's going on out there is a war. It's a war that you didn't start or I didn't start and the people didn't start. It is a war that has gradually developed in this country from police abuse. And so what we now have, instead of, instead of people um, embracing um, the police, we have people that are being advised about the chokehold death of Eric Garner, a black man, and how Freddie Gray in Baltimore... Uh, following his arrest, uh, uh, who was given a a ride in an automobile that was where he was handcuffed and broke his neck and ultimately led to his death. And Walter Scott, who was stopped for a broken taillight and ran and was shot multiple times in the back and on and on. And so we come finally to the question about this. Our police Frank, are our employees. Right. And one of the, the question that he was addressing there, and, you know, he he's pretty long-winded and so am I, is basically uh, I said that by highlighting cases like this, do you also put police under a, mi- a microscope and set them up as targets for, you know, for lunatics to, to attack them and assassinate and um, Jerry Spence gave kind of a nuanced answer, but he kept coming back to the issue that he says he's seen repeatedly, which is that he believes a lot of cops don't play fair. I said to this group of lawyers that I was talking to, I can't remember, a couple of hundred or more, folks, tell me, how many of you have ever been in a case in which the prosecution or the cops didn't misconduct themselves in some important way. Nobody raised their hands. I said, I said, well, please stand up. If you have ever been in a case 
in which the cops or the prosecutors didn't misconduct themselves. Please stand up if you have been in such a case. And up, the whole audience rose up. So my question, in addition to whether I should see the video, is what role did the race of these cops have in terms of their behavior here? Now, whether this is manslaughter, whether this is second-degree murder, I have no idea. It's clear this is way out of the bounds of uh, acceptable police behavior. I don't think, unlike other incidents that we've seen over the years where uh, the defenders of the police will say, okay, no, that was okay, or, you know, uh, things just got carried away. No, I don't think there's anybody that's defending the behavior of these police officers here, former police officers. Let me begin, since uh, Jerry Spence referenced the Freddie Gray case in Baltimore, let me begin with Mike in Baltimore. Hello, Mike. Hey, guy, it's nice to talk to you. Listen, I'll make it quick a little bit, but uh, I've been in a mixed marriage for 32 years. I've been with my beautiful black wife for 32 years in one of the roughest areas of Baltimore City. And when Freddie Gray happened, uh, I was told I need to stay in the house a little bit because some of the younger kids were really looking to jump. But anyway, I don't blame them for that. But the reason I wanted to say that I looked at the video, it's violence and threats of violence are so prevalent in the culture. You got a a 14-year-old girl paying $50 for a kid to take another kid out, and they shoot the kid. They don't put that in the news. This is the kind of stuff, violence and threats of violence, it becomes so acceptable. When I see these police officers bashing a guy unarmed in the face repeatedly, it looked like a a mixed martial arts event. And I, I'm ex-Army. I think that they should all have a mil- – in Baltimore, we got a lot of ex-Army cops coming in now. And you can tell the difference. There, it's something about – I don't want to say it's blacks, but I do say that with the, with the other guy was saying, if this would have been all white officers on a black guy, they would have burned the buildings down again. Right. But it's the violence and the threats of violence. We glamorize that way too much. So that there are people right now. So I was so hurt when I saw that. I actually talked to an officer friend of mine the other day at the 7-Eleven. I'm on a night shift guy, and I go in there and get a pizza. And I said, he just shook his head. And we were like, it's beyond not being kind. It's it's inhumane. And it's just it's just too much of that, man. And so I was, that's why I would say, if you're going to be sensitive, I know you got a, a child and all, and you don't want to see it. But to see it happen really made me feel for the guy. Mm-hmm. I don't care if he had weed or ran from the car. There's got to be another protocol besides going to that extreme. It, was, it just it was so sickening, man. And then to see the next the next phase was to show him in the hospital, yep. and then his mother. He's crying for his mom. I mean, come on. What happened to officer friendly? We grew up in the '60s. An officer would come to school. It was it was a friendly. I think we we love the police officer. Well, and Mike, I don't know Mike, what's going there on. still are a lot of cops that do do that. That that do kind oh, of yeah. take the the, uh, the the relationship between police and community very seriously. And and that's why I think you're seeing such a rush to condemn among even a lot of people that are traditionally such defenders of the police. Mike, thank you for the call and the perspective there. Eight hundred eight four eight nine two 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 still has not convinced me to watch this video. David is in the Bronx. Hello, David. Yes. Good evening. Uh, good morning. Um, I want to address all three points that you asked about. Right. I'll start with the uh, whether you should watch the videotape or not. I don't personally know if you would benefit from watching the tape, but I think a lot of people would because horrific events like this cannot be accurately conveyed through the print media or even by listening to people talking about it on the radio. And you're getting this from a blind person who's incapable of watching the video. I know that I'm not getting the full 
benefit of this by not being able to see it, okay? I've seen enough police videos before I lost my vision to kind of have a flavor of what this is, but I do regret not being able to actually see it for myself. And I think other people uh, would benefit from seeing it who are resistant to police uh, violence accepting it. Now, to the next issue about black policing. Growing up on Long Island in the 70s and 80s, there were very few black cops in Suffolk County. And as a person of color who drove around, it was my opinion, it was in my considered judgment to avoid those black cops because they had reputations for being excessively, um, what's the word, going after other black people, that they would go out of their way to, to trap black drivers or to disrespect black people that they pulled over or actually arrest them. Okay, and I know people who were in situations like that where they interacted with those few black cops who um, were seen to go out of their way to 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 uh, treat them badly. And these were other black people. And to the third question about the pay and the benefits and all this other stuff. I agree with you about like Nassau and Suffolk County and Westchester, but you also have to remember that these are very safe areas. You very rarely hear about the type of violence in Nassau, Suffolk or Westchester as you do in New York City or Memphis. That's one of the issues that I think is driving this is the kind of crime that's being encountered. In Nassau and Suffolk, they're not encountering massive amounts of gun violence and drugs and all this other stuff. So I think that has something to do with why you're not seeing the, the issues that you're seeing in places like Memphis. But I do agree that the pay has a lot to do with it. You brought this up. I mentioned this to Dominic on your show recently. I believe it was in Indiana where they were talking about hiring um, people who are not citizens because they're desperate. Um, when you're desperate to hire people, you end up hiring the wrong people. Right. So well, I, I hope we've addressed. Yeah. Um I, and uh, thank well, you said quite a bit there, um, and so I'm not going to respond to each of them. Although I will point out that there are some uh, neighborhoods on Long Island that are still still kind of pretty rough. So it's not exactly a, if all of Nassau County is is bucolic bed of roses. But your point's well taken. Given the the second thing that you referenced, your experience observing black police officers going after uh, black uh, people more aggressively. What do you think the solution is, right? Because um, we've seen people take race and quota into account when it comes to everything from the workplace to college admissions. And kind of the the rationale for it is that by having people um, exposed to folks from other backgrounds, other races, other genders, that they won't be living in a bubble and they can make better. It's a, it's a better academic experience or it's a better professional experience. Is that wise to consider when it comes to policing? For instance, should uh, units like this Scorpion unit, if there are black officers, should the precinct commanders include maybe uh, making sure that there's some white officers there as well? Or does that over-racialize the issue of policing? Is it just a question of training? What do you think, if there is something about black cops that tends to make them more aggressive— as documented by your anecdotal experience and statistically in this Harvard paper, what's the way to ameliorate that in the future? What's the solution? Well, I think one of the things they could do is, then um, Dominic had, had brought this up as well, how they had um, the body cam footage apparently is a lot less incriminating than the footage from overhead. I think what they need to do in these situations is they need to have drones following 
police officers for uh, when these type of incidents happen because body cam footage apparently isn't cutting it. And I think the culture needs to change because what I was telling you about my experience growing up, there was only there was a very limited number of black police officers in the Suffolk County Police Department when I was growing up. When you only have a couple, I think those cops feel pressure in order to fit in to be harder on other black Well, but that's people. not the case in I Memphis. In Memphis, you have a... Well, I think that's the, that's the thing. That's why I don't understand the Memphis right. situation. Right. I think the Memphis situation has to do with the fact that the, the high crime, the, the low pay, and the low experience because of the lowered um, threshold to be a police officer. Thank you, so David. that's a very complicated issue. Thank I, you. I appreciate it. I want to get to some other people here. By the way, uh, there's one story completely unrelated to this, but I, I just I had to mention this. And I'm not sure where else I'm going to have the opportunity to mention this. The Associated Press, the biggest news agency in the United States, has apologized after it was ridiculed for warning journalists against referring to the French. The AP Stylebook Twitter account had recommended writers avoid using the the in phrases like the disabled, the poor, and the French. Now, you might... Uh, this is, to me, the most ridiculous thing in the world. What? Why? Why? Why can't you say, if there are people that are French, why can't you call them the French? They said this could be dehumanizing. So the French embassy, brief, they responded by briefly changing their name to the Embassy of Frenchness in the United States. So... <laughs> Uh, The embassy spokesman told the New York Times, we just wondered what the alternative to the French would be. I mean, really? So the original AP tweet received more than 20 million views and 18,000 retweets before being deleted. It was widely, and I think rightly so, mocked on social, uh, social media. The writer Sarah Hayter joked that there was nothing as dehumanizing as being considered one of the French and that a better term was suffering from Frenchness. Ian Bremmer, who's a very accomplished political scientist, suggested people experiencing Frenchness as an alternative. And after they deleted the tweet, the AP Stylebook said its references to the French people were inappropriate, but that it did not attend to offend. See, you know, this is the problem. When we're so worried about offending anybody, that you're afraid to you're afraid to breathe. You're afraid to say the French. This is the logical conclusion of where we are. People are so paralyzed by a fear of offending that you can't communicate. We're getting to a point where we're just gonna be a whole bunch of politically correct robots. That's the only thing that may stop AI from replacing all of us is that uh, maybe AI will be too, won't, won't be woke enough. Jeez. 800-848-9222. Um, the French, they actually put that out, that their reporters should not say the French. And the reason, you know, the AP style book matters is because it is considered one of the best style guides for journalists and other writers, particularly in the U.S. So even... Journalists, and my wife is a journalist, even journalists that don't write for AP, they do tend to use the AP style book. So it is, it does kind of set a standards, uh, standard. 
800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. Jeff is in Queens. Hello, Jeff. Hey, what's up? What's up, man? First, first and foremost, thanks for having me, man. And um, secondly, you know, I'm also thankful that this thing didn't escalate into anything sure. other than some a few peaceful sit-downs, you know, because this thing could have went to the right or the left, you know, in, in any kind of fashion, you know. And uh, uh, even more so, you know, this is not the first uh, beat-down Slash murder slash homicide by cop on a on civilian whether it's black or white black on white white on white black on black Chinese on black so on and so forth you know it, it's just a matter of it was a cop and it was a civilian you know what I mean um but but the but the thing is uh I personally look at this thing and I haven't seen the video either. However, I don't have to see it because I've seen many. I've seen many, and this one probably doesn't, probably isn't much different from the, the many I've seen. But if if you ask me, and I, and I, you know, when I think of them collectively, you know, thank, getting, you, know let's, thank let's, you, Jeff. Appreciate it. All right, eight hundred eight four eight nine two two two. Liam is in the Bronx. Hello, Liam. Hi, Frank. Um, my opinion is I, I think you should watch the video, and uh, I watched it, and it's pretty gruesome. Uh, it's not good, but, uh, you know, you said on the top of the show that you said that Talk Radio did a great job covering it. How do you really know that if you haven't watched the video? Well, and yeah. if you do watch the video, uh, you, you can see that, and uh, I don't blame him, but in the video, he actually runs away from the police, which... You know, I, my question is, you know, if he didn't run away, and I don't blame him because, you know, he was scared to death and they were beating him to a pulp. But if he didn't run away from the police, would have would he have been alive today? Uh, I think that's an interesting question, and it might be maybe something that, you know, I, I don't I can't read into his mind, but. Maybe, you know, he had such a uh, the thought of the scare, you know, oh, I'm black, you know, they, they, they might kill me, I need to run away. But maybe if he didn't, you know, maybe he's alive. You know, I, I don't know. Well, uh, thank you, Liam. Look, I mean, I, I'm not I'm not so sure. I mean, it seems like uh, the I, I, but again, there's no way to know. By the way, last thing I'll mention on a slightly more upbeat note is I talked about how they're putting an end to Amazon Smile. And uh, I I shop whenever I buy something on Amazon. And I just bought the one Pat Buchanan book that I don't have. I just bought that on Amazon. I go to smile.amazon.com because they give a percentage of your purchase to a charity that you're like, well, they're discontinuing that next month. And I think that's a real shame. Well, with the end of that, uh, they have been kind of trying to come up with alternatives to, to to Amazon Smile, right? And people have been wondering where, how you can, what they call ethically shop if you do a lot of shopping on Amazon Smile. NPR actually did a, did a very good spe- uh, piece on this, and I'm going to link to it right now on my Facebook page at facebook.com slash Moranofan, and I just posted it. The headline is looking for Amazon alternatives for ethical shopping. Here are some ideas. I'm not going to read them all because I can't vouch for 
any of these specific approaches that they're recommending. But I found it helpful, and I'm going to look to some of the uh, entities that they recommend. So if you want to check it out, I just posted that, uh, facebook.com slash Moranofan. All right, this is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight. Midnight. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. ACDC. Apparently, it is a long way to the top if you'd like to rock and roll. Uh, I was talking with Charles Gasparino over the weekend from Fox Business, and uh, he and I go back a long time. We used to, uh, back when I was socializing more regularly, something uh, something tells me he's still out partying like crazy. But uh, Charlie and I used to go out pretty regularly and uh, share a martini or two. And so uh, I, I like Charlie, even when we've disagreed in terms of economics or other things. But I love his style. He's such a hard worker, great sources, great writer. I've read uh, two of his books. And um, it was his birthday over the weekend, so I told him he could pick some of the bumper music for today. And this was the only song that he asked for. Long way to the top if you want to rock and roll. All right. Um, we're going to get back to your phone calls in just a moment. I think if you know me, you know that a big part of what defines me is my fondness for egg, eggs as a food. You got to love the incredible edible egg. Now, part of what's so great about the egg is everything, historically. It's historically been a low-cost protein. And now the price has gone up. More than 60% year over year, one year. And there's a variety of factors as to why. But some consumers, um, so I have been looking, I stopped buying eggs. I'm still buying them for my family, but I've stopped eating eggs. And I am really bummed about this because this is my favorite food. So I've been trying to figure out an alternative to this. I explored the chicken possibility. It doesn't appear that getting a chicken is practical at this point. But um, I brought up the idea about using some egg replacements. You know, there's um, all these plant-based egg alternatives. I think one of them, the one that J.B. Smoove does the advertisement for is uh, Just Egg. But you have Yo, which is an egg, soy, and chickpea protein. You have Germany's Perfegd, 
P-E-R-F-E-G-G-T. Spiro Food makes its liquid egg alternative from pumpkin seeds. Usually, these egg alternatives are more expensive than regular eggs. Now, uh, so typically these plant-based eggs typically cost more than chicken eggs or what they call shell eggs. Yet in 2022, prices dropped to $1 cheaper per unit than shell eggs. So as shell egg sales declined, plant-based egg sales have risen. So I'm looking at this data from The Hustle, which is a newsletter that I subscribe to, and they quote this article in Bloomberg. Now, for the first time, it is making more sense to use, if your only issue is cost, the plant-based eggs as opposed to the shell eggs. So I got news for you. This week, I'm going to the grocery store. I am going on a shopping spree of plant-based eggs in order to save some money. So that's what I'm doing. I'm not telling anybody else to do it. In fact, I hope you don't because the more people start buying these plant-based eggs, they're going to raise prices. But this is good news for me. I mean, it's terrible that egg prices are still so high. But it's good news for me in terms of looking for a lower-cost egg alternative for me to have this one here. All right, 800-848-9222. Let me say hello to Judy in Baltimore. Hello, Judy. Hi. I appreciate your work, and I appreciate the egg advice. Thank uh, you, Judy. I, uh, I did see the video, and I'm grateful that I did, although it was hard. Uh, but I feel like it gives you street cred, uh, credibility, if you want to talk to people about it. And it's, for me, it was hard to believe. Today, I read Martin Luther King, uh, Googled him, I Have a Dream, and just read it and wrote it out. And it really helped me. I was just left with... Uh, a heavy feeling. I love the police, always have. And I think I still do, but I don't know what to do with this and what would he do. Uh, anyway, he reading him helped me. Well, I'm happy to hear that, uh, Judy. And thank you for calling. Thanks for your nice words. So Judy says to watch it. I still don't see the value for me in watching it. I, I, I'm not going to watch it. I'm not watching it. Mike is in Brooklyn. Hello, Mike. Good morning, you egghead. <laughs> <laughs> I'll take it. I've been called a lot worse, Mike. Okay, yeah. I, I want to see the video, but I want to see the video from the dash cam to the end. And unfortunately, I can't because I'm blind. But it's, I hear the explanations and everything. It sounds horrible. They should, they're getting what they deserve. Uh, they you know, they're going to be prosecuted. Maybe that's why you don't see as much rioting or whatever. You know, the people are learning to let let the procedure work when not, it's not the greatest. But, uh, you know, it's the best thing on, on Earth. Um, the other part is the comment of the uh, the the. Uh, the Mike, I got to run I'm, uh, up against the uh, top of the hour. Thank you. Um, yeah, I think also the reason you don't see people rioting is because these cops are black. I hate to say that, but I believe that's true. All right. 
in just a moment, we'll get into this uh, one other policing issue that got a lot of attention. Until next hour, keep asking questions. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano. Another policing issue which has gotten a lot of attention the uh, last few days is the situation in San Francisco regarding the handling of the uh, Paul Pelosi attack. Uh, if, just to refresh your recollection, Paul Pelosi is the husband of – he's a, kind of a wealthy business guy in his own right, but he w- is the husband of the former Speaker of the House, Nancy Pelosi. And someone uh, came to his house and basically held him hostage with a hammer – Police came. They arrested him. He attacked Paul Pelosi. But we didn't know a lot of details. There were changing stories coming out from different media outlets. Initially, there was a report that there were three people in the house. It seemed like the uh, police department in San Francisco was, for some reason, not exactly being forthcoming. And it allowed a lot of conspiracy theories to develop. And there were a whole bunch of people on social media, uh, Dinesh D'Souza and others, that were touting the possibility that I don't know, I don't even re- realize the the full magnitude I think it was the most common theory that I heard from both callers on talk radio and from some provocateurs on social media was that this was actually like a, a lover of Paul Pelosi and somehow things had gone sour it wasn't a stranger that had broken in it was just you know that so I think the San Francisco Police Department did the right thing in terms of releasing as much of the footage, the body camera footage, and the 911 tape of Paul Pelosi calling. Because a lot of people said at the time, and I think it was a legitimate question, basically they would say, well, why did this attacker, if that's what he was, sit there and wait for for, uh, Paul Pelosi to call the police? Why would you do that if you were attacking? So I thought it was uh, I thought it was prudent that they released this information, and I have to tell you, and I'm going to play you the 911 call as much as we can right now, and you could judge for yourself. But given what I heard on this 911 call and what I saw on the body camera footage, I think that this was a remarkable amount of presence of mind. Of an 82-year-old man. Now, keep in mind a couple of things. One, a lot of people made an issue of the fact that Paul Pelosi was in his underwear at the time. Well, it was the middle of the night. I mean, it would be unusual if he wasn't in his underwear at that time. The other thing, keep in mind, this is an 82-year-old man who's being um, held hostage by somebody that is far younger, who has a hammer, and who's clearly a lunatic. And... Paul Pelosi wants the police to come to his house. But this guy is listening the entire time. 
So think about how you would handle this situation. It's the middle of the night. You're in your underwear. You've been uh, you've been roused from a sleep with this guy who's holding a hammer, and you want the police to come. And Paul Pelosi, if you listen to this nine one one tape, I, and this has nothing to do with his politics. I would never you know vote for Nancy Pelosi or anything, and I don't know much about Paul Pelosi and his history, but. I think he is displaying a a great presence of mind. And, you know, I've been brushing up on my notes for Star Trek II The Wrath of Khan in anticipation of the uh, stage interview that I'm going to do with William Shatner, February 10th and 11th. And one of the great scenes in Star Trek II The Wrath of Khan is when Kirk knows his communications are being monitored and he speaks to Spock in code. And this is one of the issues... One of the questions that I have for Shatner when when we speak, but listen to how Paul Pelosi speaks in code during this 911 tape. I got to hand it to him. I think he's calm. He's not saying anything that's going to have this lunatic attack him. And he's kind of conveying the proper message to the police that something's wrong here. Listen to this. 2022. Oh, I guess I, I guess I, I called my mistake. What is it? This is San Francisco Police. Do you need help? Oh, well, there's a gentleman uh, here just waiting for my wife to come back. Nancy Pelosi. Uh, he's just uh, waiting for her to come back because she's not going to be here for a day, so I guess we'll have to wait. Okay, do you need police, fire, or medical for anything? Uh, I, I don't think so. I don't think so. Zero, two, twenty-three, and fifty-eight seconds. Uh, there, there's the, uh, um, is the Capitol Police around? No, this they, is San Francisco. They usually, my wife. They're, usually here, they're usually here at the house protecting my wife. Uh, no, this is San Francisco Police. Friday, October. I, I, no, I understand. Eight, two, um, okay, well, zero, uh, two, twenty-four, and I don't know, what do you think? Uh, he thinks everything's good. Uh, I've got a problem, but he thinks everything's good. Zero, uh, okay, call us back if you change your mind. No, 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 this, this gentleman just uh, came into the house. Uh, and he wants to wait here for my wife to come home. Zero, two, and so, uh, and anyway, he's on the phone know, Do you know who the person is? No, I don't know who he is. He, he, uh, uh, he has this, he's telling me, he's telling me not to, uh, he's telling me not to do anything. What is your address, sir? Uh, 26. Two, twenty-five, and zero. What is your name? Uh, my name is Paul Pelosi. Friday, anyway, this, this gentleman says that uh, he thinks everything ought to, you know, he, he told me to put the phone down and uh, just do what he said. Okay? Okay, who, what's the gentleman's name? I don't know. What's that? My name's David. Da- the name is David. Okay, and who is David? I, I don't know. I, what's that? I'm a friend of theirs. Yeah, I, I, um, he says he's a friend, but... But you don't know who he is? No, no, ma'am. Okay. 
He's telling me I'm being very leading, so I, I got to stop Seven, talking to you, okay? Okay. You sure? I can stay on the phone with you just to make sure everything's okay. No, he, he wants me to get the hell off the phone. So I thought it was interesting. First of all, I, I was trying to wrap my head around that 911 operator, that 911 dispatcher. When she says, uh, you know, and I know a lot of times they just try to keep the person talking to try and get as many clues as to what's going on, to be able to pr- paint as much of a picture as they can for any responding police as they can. But when she says, all right, well. Call us back if if you change your mind. It did sound to me almost like she was being sincere, like she was kind of saying, oh, okay, well, all right, see you later, when clearly there was something wrong. Paul Pelosi had to, you know, he was really, again, keep in mind, he's woken up in the middle of the night, his back door is smashed in with a hammer, Uh, this lunatic is looking for his wife. He's trying to get the police there while not get this guy to start attacking him with the hammer. And um, he's trying to convey to the 911 operator, yeah, something is wrong here. So I thought it was um, actually pretty impressive, his handling of this. And then this is something that is really more visual, but I'll play you the audio anyway. The police do. Get the message. And if you want to comment, you can. 800-848-9222. The police do get the message and they come to the uh, they come to the to the house. And Paul Pelosi's at the door with this guy, Dave DePap, holding the hammer. Okay. And this is the audio of what you hear, but it really is a very uh action-packed, and a very anxiety-inducing 20 or 30 seconds. Listen to this. Hi. Drop the hammer. Um, nope. Hey. Hey, hey, hey. What is going on right now? I'm not getting an answer. I'm called Whoa, oh, 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 So, uh, I... I thought the police handled this pretty well. The They say, drop the hammer. The guy says, nope. There's a second or two, and he starts beating Paul Pelosi. And as soon as they start, he starts beating Paul Pelosi, all these cops, you know, run, jump into the house and uh, get on top of this guy. But I read one commentary from um, John Bonzoff, who's a veteran public interest law professor, who I, I've interviewed many times. And say I, I generally agree with from a legal perspective he comes from a very reasonable place and he says that the that you can blame police hesitation for Paul Pelosi's injuries he says there was plenty of time to shoot once danger was pre- presented this is what uh, Bonzoff said dramatic video of the vicious hammer attack on an elderly Paul Pelosi by a much younger potential assassin suggests that unreasonable hesitation by the police was a major factor in Pelosi's life-threatening injuries. Some, This is what he says. Some 15 seconds appear to have elapsed between the time the police first saw Pelosi in his pajamas grabbing a hammer held in the hand of a much younger intruder and the blow which would have been fatal, yet the police did not even fire a single shot at the other man. That's not what I saw. 
I mean, it didn't look like 15 seconds to me. Then Bonzoff says, some nine seconds after the door is opened and the scene with its deadly risk is clearly presented, the police obviously realize what's going on, or at the very least that the younger man is holding a deadly weapon near, very near the older one and therefore ordered him to drop it. When the intruder refuses to do so, the police do nothing at that point to stop him from attacking Pelosi with the hammer. Even after the intruder clearly and expressly refuses to comply with the police order to drop his weapon by saying, nope, the police still do not fire. Look, I get what Professor Bonzoff is saying here, but I think the police behaved appropriately. I mean, they're standing right next to one another. You want to start firing shots? And if this guy if this guy darts the wrong way or grabs Paul Pelosi, you have a situation where Paul Pelosi's not just potentially attacked with a hammer, but shot with a police bullet? I don't think the police uh the police handled this inappropriately at all. So then, according to Bonzoff, several more seconds elapse after his verbal refusal before the intruder finally swings the hammer at Pelosi's head, and yet even at that late time, the police still do not shoot. Instead, they waste another critical second or two for several officers to race into the room and finally subdue the intruder by physically overpowering him. What Bonzoff says is that numerous studies have shown that it can take a second or two between the moment when a police officer first observes a deadly threat and is able to accurately point his gun and pull the trigger. This inherent reaction time is the reason why police are trained not to necessarily wait until a suspect draws and actually points a weapon, but rather to shoot before that can happen. That's why the police should not have waited some 15 seconds after first viewing through the open door a situation in which a suspect, who is obviously not a carpenter doing late-night repairs, is brandishing a deadly weapon. And Bonzov says it probably should not have taken them some nine seconds to take some action in this instance. I'm curious what you think, particularly I know we have a lot of cops that listen and retired cops. Do you agree with this, that this was an issue of police hesitancy causing Paul Pelosi's injuries? I don't. I think this was really terrific heads-up handling of the situation by Paul Pelosi, and I think the police acted appropriately. I think once you start firing weapons into Paul Pelosi's house. There's no telling what could happen. So I I think the police behaved... I mean, look, it's terrible that the guy got attacked with a hammer. But I I think it's unfair to blame police hesitancy in this. What do you think? 800-848-9222. Also, I'm curious, do you think that now that the San Francisco Police Department has released this 911 call and the body camera footage and... Dave DePap has, he essentially called reporters over the weekend and apologized for not going further and has made no bones about his guilt in this situation. Do you think that now that they've released this footage and DePap has essentially confessed that this will put an end to some of the more bizarre conspiracy theories surrounding this whole thing and why or why not? Also, if you were, and we appreciate, you know, know, this is all honor system stuff here. If you were one of these people that thought that there was something fishy going on, does this put that to rest? Now that you've seen what's going on here, do you realize, okay, this was not his gay lover or anything like that? And are some of the people that were exploring that possibility on social media, 
do they owe Paul Pelosi something of an apology here? So you want to comment on that in any way you can. You're welcome to 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. Let me begin with Dan on Long Island. Hello, Dan. Hey, how you doing, Frank? First Good. time, long time. Oh, great. Well, I appreciate it. Thank you. No, I just wanted to say that video was frightening. Like, that guy had that hammer to that guy. I, I, I didn't hear the 911 call before you just played it, but that frightening video was frightening. That guy was huge. I think he undersold a little bit. It's like a 300-pound guy against an 82-year-old man. Right. Yeah, and the cops, they did. I think they did the best they can. I don't think anyone should criticize them. Like, the guy had a hammer. It was like a whole – I mean, the, like you watch that video, it's like – Literally, guys say, like, oh, my God. Like, I think it's just sad, though, because that guy obviously is mentally ill. Oh, yeah. No And question. maybe he was fed by the social media or these, like, people on Facebook, like, kind of like, oh, man, Macy Pelosi, like, you know, controlling everything. So the whole thing is just sad. Sad and very frightening. Yeah. Um, so do you agree with my take that Paul Pelosi handled that phone call pretty well? Oh, my God. That was the worst non- like 911 like operator ever. No, he was doing <laughs> right. the receiver right thing. Like he was like he was like I have this guy here who's not who I don't know. And once you say it like three times, you don't know him. You're like lady, like he's trying to tell you. Like it was, yeah, it was a trip. That was wild. Yeah. Hey Dan, thanks. Now that you've uh, now that you've popped your cherry, you got to call more regularly. Okay. Definitely. Yeah. I. I. You know what? I found out you through wrestling because John Rizzi was on your show a couple months ago. And I started listening. So. Well, great. Hey, well, we're going to talk a little bit about the Royal Rumble coming up next. So thank you. I appreciate Let's you calling. Cody. Okay? Thanks, man. A- 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 amen. Amen. 800-848-9222. I think she blew it. Do you remember um, when the, uh, there was a woman who was abducted and she called the, the uh, 911 operator for a uh, pizza? Uh, I, I, you know what? Vaguely. Do you yeah. re- remember the name of the person or or which case that was? Mm. No, she was being held hostage, and she called for a pizza, and the 911 operator was on it. If it was this lady, she would have said, we don't deliver pizzas, and hung up on her. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, I'm listening to the And again, I, I never know how much is just the 911 operator trying to keep the phone call going. But when she says, when she says, all right, well, if you change your mind, let us call us back. And uh, you could almost hear Paul Pelosi panicking at that point, saying, I can't believe this woman is is taking me, you know. Yeah, almost, almost complete frustration. I think you're completely correct. Like, she, she they could have had someone there so much faster. Hey, uh, thanks for the call, Chris. I appreciate it very much. Nope. 800-848-9222. Steve in Manhattan. Steve, I was shocked that you did not call in the other day when we did our our uh, retrospective on the uh, life and times of Pat Buchanan. I thought if there was ever a tailor-made moment for you, that was it. Well, I didn't want to steal the show. <laughs> no, I'm just, I'm just, just joking. No, I'm just joking. Uh, anytime you want to do two hours on Pat Buchanan, I- I'm willing to do it. Anytime you want. And uh, isn't that the house with the uh, giant meat locker loaded with ice cream? Maybe the 300-pound dude was breaking in for the ice cream, you know, and the uh, Paul Pelosi always seems to get in trouble when Nancy's out of town and she's on the road or she's in D.C. or something. But um, I, I look at it this way. You know, the neighbors have cameras. It would be interesting if a, a camera actually caught them smashing the door down. And the operators are trained. That woman was very good at what she was oh, doing. You because, t- so you think she handled that well? Oh, well, let me tell you why. First of all, 
the, everything shows up right on her screen. She knows who's calling. She knows the number, the address. Everything is right in front of her. She has to feel the situation out. The cops were there within two or three minutes. Now, I don't know if it's because it's the speaker's house. And now the cops are going there. Uh, they might be, you know, a little bit hesitant. They don't know who the guy is. Maybe it's her grandson or something. And they don't, they don't want, right. you know, they, they, you don't know what's going through those cops' heads. But I think the operator, and plus she sounded kind of cute too. But the thing was, she is trained to do that. A lot of them are, are trained, but they, I guess they don't accept the training and they mess up. But this woman handled it perfectly. And also, I thought the San Francisco police, they don't arrest anybody out there. Don't they? Aren't they going wild down San Francisco? <laughs> yeah, right? well, look, I, I think listen, after their uh, DA was recalled, maybe they're a little more likely to actually prosecute people. Right. And any time we want to do a show on Pat Buchanan, I'd be willing to do it. Now, remember now, Pat came t- to my side on trade. And he came in, and he was then all of a sudden, because when he went up to New Hampshire, he saw those people I, I in remember, I, I, Yeah, I talked about this. He, I talked about this on Thursday. Absolutely. He he was always a free trader, and uh, that's right. He did uh, come around to you on that one, Steve. You made a believer out of Pat. What can you say? 800-848-9222. Let me say hello to uh, Eddie in Nassau County. Hello, Eddie. Hey, good morning, Frank. Just one question. When they showed the pictures of the house, Pelosi's house being broke, supposedly broken into, all the glass shatterings on the outside on the patio floor, if he was breaking in, wouldn't the glass shatterings be on the inside on the floor? Yeah, you know, I, I don't know. So I didn't actually see that, those images. So tell me what you think, what you find suspicious here. I could tell by your tone that you're not buying the official story. What do you find suspicious? No, I, I I think that the whole thing was uh, those guys got to get together, and the argument was over who sold the most copies of If I Had a Hammer. And one was swearing it was Trini Lopez, and the other one was saying it was Peter, Paul, and Mary. Well, thank you, Eddie. I, I don't think you've lived until you've heard the Leonard Nimoy version of I, I, If I Had a Hammer, a fine, fine version. You know, Shatner gets all the credit. For singing, but um, you know, we've we've seen a very very good rendition of that from Leonard Nimoy as well. Chris is on Long Island. Hello, Chris. Hi, how are you tonight? I'm an avid listener. You you're fantastic oh, on thanks. the radio. I appreciate that. That's awfully nice of you. Thank you. A hundred percent. I just want to say I believe the police acted appropriately. What really went wrong was when they opened the door, you see quite obviously Mr. Pelosi was trying to handle the hammer, holding the hand of the person with the hammer. And when the police addressed the the person and said, you need to put the hammer down, if you look at the video, Pelosi releases his hand from the subject and slightly moves away allowing the subject to become amplified in their agitation. And that was when he struck Pelosi. If Pelosi would have said simply, please, I need some help. But he was he was obviously conducting himself appropriately to a deranged individual who had a, a weapon. And in that moment, he didn't express that he needed extreme help from the police officers. And in regard to the statement by the lawyer saying they should have shot, no, they shouldn't have shot. They did appropriate, but they were still deducing the situation when they came upon the scene. And if Pelosi just would have expressed, please help me, you know, this guy has a hammer. 
they could have then taken physical action against the subject before Pelosi released the hammer from his hand. If I, you follow what I'm saying. Yeah, no, I think I do. So you're saying, one, the police behaved appropriately and that maybe Paul Pelosi didn't behave in the kind of uh, exemplary manner that I'm giving him credit for. Well, he was handling psychologically, he was handling that assailant very well. He was remaining calm, but he had his hand on the hammer with the assailant. He had his hand there with 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 the uh, with the uh, the intruder that was attempting to harm him. And he was remaining calm, which probably extended the the length of time that he didn't get struck. If he would have become ultra aggressive, mm. it might have amplified the situation. And I've seen this happen. Uh, I I run a company that does uh, private security for nightclubs, and we know when we intervene in a situation, sometimes that actually amplifies the situation. Oh yeah, no, I've seen that absolutely, no doubt about it. Uh, hey, Chris, thank you. I have to break. Great call, and uh, appreciate you listening. Eight hundred eight four eight ninety two twenty two. If you want to comment on this or anything else that we've covered, you're welcome to do so. This is the other side of midnight. I'm Frank Morano. Straight ahead, the other side of midnight with Frank Morano. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. It's the other side of midnight with Frank Morano. This is the uh, Trini Lopez version of If I Had a Hammer. Uh, not as good as the Leonard Nimoy version, honestly, but uh, it's not bad. Not bad. Certainly still a, a powerful message behind it. Hopefully you had a good weekend. It's Monday. I like Mondays. Always have. Uh, Mondays are a little tough for me because I go in from I go from the transition of sleeping and living almost like a normal person to back to nocturnal hours. So it usually takes one day to transition and Monday's the day. So it's always it's always a little bit of a, a tricky situation. But I still feel like the you have the whole week ahead of you. And uh, there's a list of things that you can accomplish. Nothing seems undoable. I love Mondays. So um, I had a good weekend. I hope you did too. Friday night, my wife and I went out to dinner at uh, a restaurant that I really love in Brooklyn. And it's uh, one of my favorites in the whole country, not just in Brooklyn. It's uh, I don't, I'm not going to mention it because I know John Katzmatidis gets upset when I give free publicity uh, to uh, to restaurants. But it's a it's a good one. 
So, but you know, the thing is, going out when you have a child is a totally different ball game. And look, all of you that are parents are aware of this. But unless you have a parent or a sibling to babysit, you have to hire a babysitter. And I, uh, so we went out to dinner, and it's a great restaurant, but it is kind of pricey. So you end up spending, you know, a nice amount of money for dinner at the restaurant and a couple of drinks, right? And then, you know, there's traffic and the restaurant's all the way out in Brooklyn and we don't live in Brooklyn. So you end up having to pay the babysitter. We had we pay her $20 an hour. So we thought it was going to be about five hours. And it turns out it was we were, it was closer to six and a half hours, right? I mean, yeah. So you're out a lot of money. So, I mean, on one night out, if you have to hire a babysitter, it's a fortune. If you go into an expensive place, like if you go to a Chinese restaurant around the corner, it's not so expensive. It's well worth it, but this is the kind of outing probably that I think we'll only do a couple times a year. Uh, but it was fun. Fun to see everybody. Got to see my friend Joe Ween, uh, my friend Joe Sibelia, Corey Windelspect, uh, who has the same birthday as uh, Joe Sibelia. And this was a spot that uh, my friend Christine, who goes back and forth between here and Florida, she's been eager to go to for a long time. She hasn't been to this particular restaurant in in a long time. So then Saturday comes around and uh, we had that engagement party for my friend Jeffrey Goldstein that I told you about at his uh, with his girlfriend or now fiance Andrea in Hoboken, New Jersey. Now, thankfully for Saturday, my mom was able to babysit. So we didn't have to worry about the expense of a babysitter, but we went out to Hoboken. And this is my kind of engagement party. You know why? One, it's early. It was at a bar. Super casual not it was not at 9 p.m in a place that's really far to get to in a place that's super fancy it's a bar in the middle of the afternoon so you know a lot of times when you have a a one-year-old it's tough to get out of the house right so it takes you it takes you a while so we were we were late but nobody cared because it's a super informal very relaxed environment so that was um that was a good time and uh congratulations to both jeffrey and andrea and we had a great time at the engagement party. Great to catch up with some old friends and uh, meet some new people as well. So Sunday, I don't know what it was, but Carmine, my son, did something he very rarely does. He was up crying. Now, I went to bed early because I, I was tired. but I, So we were in bed by maybe 9.30 or so. We did. I, I did manage to get my wife to watch the end of the Royal Rumble, which was a lot of fun. I'll give you my take on that in a second. But the so we were in bed maybe by ten. We saw who won the Royal Rumble, watched an episode of Cheers because I'm forcing her to rewatch. Not rewatch for me. Watch for the first time for her. Cheers. We were in bed by I think ten ten fifteen at the very latest, and then Carmine is up crying by 3.15 in the morning. Now, it's not unusual for him to cry, but we'll leave him alone for two minutes, three minutes, five minutes, and he goes back to sleep. For whatever reason, he was not happy. So I go in there, and I bring him a a bottle, and he downs this whole bottle. I guess he was just thirsty. I mean, we gave him dinner, gave him a bottle before going to bed, but um, and then he went back to sleep, but now I am wired. I can't sleep a uh, a lick. Right? I, I'm up starting at around 3.15 in the morning. So I'm up the whole day. 
And it's just as well. We got we got to build a dresser, right? We got some errands done. I got some show prep done for the show. I got to read some of the papers. I got to get some reading done. It's fine. My friend uh, Vinny, I thought my wife was going to be out on Long Island because my sister-in-law Sharon gave birth to a beautiful baby boy, Eric Christopher. So uh, I thought that she was going to be out there helping her. But look, Sharon wasn't released until last night. So my wife's going to and the baby. And thankfully, everybody's doing great and everyone looks good and everyone feels good. So um, but I think uh, Rachel's going to head out there today uh, to go see her sister and her new nephew. And then we'll all go out there next weekend. So um, I had thought I was going to be home Sunday all day with Carmine, but it was not to be. So Rachel and I were home. We had a kind of a relaxed Sunday. Got to watch some of the football game. We went out uh, just to a neighborhood restaurant to have some pizza, and um, then I was able to take a nap. Woke up, thankfully, in time to see the fourth quarter of that uh, Chiefs-Bengals game. Boy, that was an exciting game. That is the kind of game where if you take someone that has never watched football before and say, all right, this is what football is, I feel like they'd be a fan for life. I mean, that was awesome. I'm sorry that the 49ers lost, uh, but I am going to be supporting the Chiefs in the Super Bowl. So that is uh, that's going to be fun. Hey, you know, I am in one um, Super Bowl pool. And I'll tell you about that a little bit later. It's neither here nor there. But. So that was Sunday. Saturday night, I was very excited that, uh, oh, in the meantime, there's also two cats living in my garage right now. My my wife does this thing where she settles cats or, I forget what you call it, but after a stray cat is fixed, they need time just to rest somewhere. So my wife has been taking in these cats and she they stay in a carrier in our garage and she goes and feeds them and uh, changes their, uh, not the litter, but changes the, you know, she takes care of them. But they have to basically stay in one spot for two days or at least a day and a half after their procedure. So right now, in addition to the three cats that are in our house and the two or three outside cats that my wife is feeding, she basically set up a cat colony at our house. So we have the three cats that live inside our house. You have a cat food, water situation in front of our house, which at least two or three cats every day are patronizing. And then in our garage, there's two additional cats that are being, I forget what you call, homed or something, I don't know, conditioned. And uh, so that's what's what's going on there now. But I did get to watch a good portion of the Royal Rumble match on Saturday night. I watched from about uh, the... If you're not familiar with the Royal Rumble and what it is, it's really a fun thing. And it's one of the great innovations in wrestling. And basically, you come into this 1 through 30. You draw numbers. And maybe you're number 2. That's not a good number. Maybe you're number 30. That's a great number. And you come in every 60 seconds. It starts with two guys. Then the number 3 guy comes in after 60 seconds. Then after that, the number 4 guy. So you could have a situation where there's... 12 people in the ring all at the same time or 15 and it's fun and it leads to all these weird matchups of wrestlers that might never be in the ring with one another at the, at the same time and the goal is you have to throw the other wrestlers over the top rope and eliminate them and whoever is eliminated last is the uh, is the ultimate winner and the way they've been doing it the last couple of decades really 
is if you win at the Royal Rumble, you get a chance to wrestle the champion at WrestleMania. So it's really kind of a big deal. It's fun. And I love that they're doing it on Saturday now because Sunday, one, it interferes with football and people have to be up for work or go to school or whatever. So I got to watch most of this uh, men's Royal Rumble matchup. They also do a women's Royal Rumble matchup, which I did not see because I was already testing my wife's patience by making her watch some uh, some wrestling. But I, I, I really don't watch wrestling that often anymore. The wrestling that I watch is basically old wrestling documentaries of wrestlers that were big 30, 40, 50 years ago in some cases. So I don't habitually watch wrestling, one, because I don't have a lot of TV time. And if I do have TV time, I feel like, um, you know, I'll watch something that my wife wants to watch, too, or something like Cheers, which I'm forcing her to watch. So my rooting interests in terms of wrestling these days are mostly in terms of the older wrestlers. For instance, I love Chris Jericho in AEW because he was big. He was just kind of starting out when I followed pro wrestling very closely. But I also like the people that are the children of the folks that I grew up watching. Like uh, my favorite wrestler of all time is Ric Flair. So even though I've never been into women's wrestling, I love watching his daughter wrestle because for me it's kind of a, a throwback. And one of the guys that I have followed a bit is this fella, Cody Rhodes. My wrestler that I just loved, and I played audio from him from time to time on this program because he was just one of the great Mike people of all time, was the American dream Dusty Dusty Rhodes. His son, Dustin, also was a wrestler for a time. They would call him the All-American Dustin Rhodes. Then he became Gold Dust. Yeah, I think he had a few other gimmicks as well, but he had a pretty accomplished career in pro wrestling as well. Nothing like his father. His father was one of the great pro wrestlers of all time, a legend in the Florida Territory. So Cody is the son of Dusty Rhodes. Dusty, they would call him the American Dream. Cody calls himself the American Nightmare. And so I follow Cody, and I like Cody a lot. And he's a great athlete. Honestly, he doesn't have the mic skills that his father did, but he's a far better athlete than his father was. And I would argue, and I'm not taking anything away from his brother here, but I would argue that he's a far better wrestler in terms of just wrestling skills than his brother was. So he had a devastating, possibly career-ending injury. And I was excited to see him come back from that injury just to be able to participate in the Royal Rumble. Lo and behold, he draws number 30, which is the best number you could have. And then we're watching this, and he's one of the last men standing with the guy that drew number one. I think it was Seth Rollins. So the wrestling, and my wife is saying, well, that's not fair. How can that guy who drew number 30 be in the ring at the same time as the guy that drew number one? And I said, honey, it's the Royal Rumble. Anything can happen. So Cody Rhodes wins the Royal Rumble. And I got to tell you, I couldn't be happier. And so he's going to get a title shot at WrestleMania. He'll get a chance to win the world title. He's been away from the WWE for a few years. He came back last WrestleMania, been involved with the AEW and some other promotions. But he's back, and now he's going to have a chance to wrestle for the championship. Here was Cody Rhodes after the Royal Rumble. The thing I wanted my whole career— 
um, a moment like that. I, I actually, I, I, I don't think he'll mind you telling, I don't think he'll mind me telling you guys. I, I talked to Randy Orton last night and uh, I remembered I was in the Royal Rumble at the very end. I, uh, Triple H, Randy Orton and myself and I, Triple H eliminated me, but that caused Randy to eliminate him and he, he won the Royal Rumble and he brought us in the ring. I remember thinking, I'll just sit on the floor, stay small. And uh, he brought us in the ring and I thought, man, I, I want to be that guy. Um, but I also thought like, oh, that'll be next year. That'll be next year. I'll, uh, I'll be up there. And, uh, here we are. I think that was over 10 years ago. So, uh, just, uh, the thing I was missing that I didn't have then and that I've, I've found and I, I don't take it for granted is somewhere along the lines I connected with the people and, um, maybe 2015 when I took the excursion and, and bet on myself and, uh, went out, but, uh, invaluable, right? That's, that's what I miss. You can clothesline people and Cody, Cody Cutter, um, and crossroads people do your blue in the face. The thing that, uh, I like is, uh, to be able to connect with people because I have the privilege and I have the honor, but also I have the burden of, I don't play anybody. I'm me. And, uh, tonight me was good enough and uh it's just uh it feels good to have that so there you go i'm happy to see that and uh matt blaze corrected me that the other the other person the the final person that uh, cody rhodes eliminated was a fellow by the name of gunther but he did draw number one so my wife's observation was was still uh on the money that he drew number one the person before that the, the penultimate person to be eliminated was uh, the person they call Seth freaking Rollins. Did you watch it, Matt? I did. What, I did. What were your impressions? Um, I liked, I think the Royal Rumble match is always like highs and lows. Um, and some people get eliminated like way too fast that you don't think are going to get eliminated, eliminated way too fast, which I guess in a way kind of makes things different and unexpected, but it was no surprise to me that Cody Rhodes won. I think he'll win WrestleMania. I think he'll beat Roman Reigns oh. at WrestleMania. Well, and Roman Reigns is one of the longest running champ- reigning champions yeah. in decades, right? Yeah, I, I've been saying for a long time because the championship was going back and forth too much, like right. where like Triple H is right, a 16 times. It was meaning, yeah. It was yeah, I said so they need to be able to make it yeah, where somebody have, has it right, and they have. for a long time. Right. And Roman Reigns right now is number four in length of holding the title, and he's coming up on Pedro Morales, mm-hmm. who's at number three. And then I think it's Hogan and Bruno San Martino, the top two. Well, um, Bob Backlund's got to be uh, longer oh, maybe, reigning maybe than maybe Hogan. Ba- maybe he is Backlund. Yeah. You may be right. Ba- yeah, because Backlund was like five years right, about that it. he held something like that. But Roman Reigns has been holding for a long time. So I think Cody's going to be the next guy in the company, and he's going to take take it from Roman Reigns. But Gunther, that guy Gunther is like insane. He's had the match of the year uh, with Sheamus at Clash of the Castle. Well, see, I don't know anything about his background. What's his story? What, why is he? So he came from NXT. He's like the, he's in a group called Imperium. He's just a big guy that can wrestle. And I, the fact that he drew number one, and they said that he's he has now broken the record of the longest participant in right, the Royal he broke Rumble. Rick Flair's record. Yeah, it was an hour and twelve minutes yeah, that he right. was in the ring. Um, The other thing that I was interested to see is that uh, Brock Lesnar is still active. He came and he did his thing and he was kind of disruptive. Yeah, and that was the one, the guy that got eliminated too fast. But I guess it sets up the WrestleMania between Bobby Lashley 
And Brock Lesnar. Right, but what's amazing to me is Brock Lesnar is 45 years old. The guy is in incredible shape. The guy looks like a truck. He's still as dominant as he was 20 years ago. It's amazing to me. Absolutely amazing. He, uh, by the way, was also a uh, mixed martial artist and a football player. So he's uh, he's had a he's a real athlete. I mean, and uh, and a veteran. I think he was in the the army uh, or the uh, army national guard at the very least. I think he had some issue with colorblindness where it limited his military service. So, but he's found an out. Uh, he's certainly found an outlet when it comes to professional wrestling. All right, eight hundred eight four eight ninety two twenty two. We'll continue with your calls straight ahead. Other side of midnight. It's the other side of midnight with Frank Morano. Christopher Cross sailing. This is a birthday bumper music selection by Lance Rhea of Lake Films, a terrific producer, cinematographer, editor, and uh, really just a, a great talent overall. One of the leading independent filmmakers in the New York area. And he had a terrific anthology series called In the Mind's Eye. And uh, you can check more out about him at lakefilms.com. But as we occasionally do with interesting people, we wanted to give him the opportunity to make some of our bumper music selections. So you have Lance Rhea to thank for this, the multi-talented independent filmmaker, if you are a um, fan of Christopher Cross. And, you know, this goes to show you how helpful this system that I've developed is. I reached out for, you know, I know Lance, but not well. But when I saw that it was birthday today, I reached out to him and I found him through his website. And I found an email address for him through his website. When you know, I found a typo on his website. And I was able to point that out to him and it's been corrected. So there you know, there you have it. All right. 800-848-9222. I want to encourage you to follow me on Twitter at Frank Morano. And to join our Facebook, oh, you know, yeah, Twitter on at Frank Morano and join our Facebook group. Just go to Facebook and search Morano Radio Fans and Haters. You can go to Facebook.com slash groups slash Radio Morano. One of the things that has gotten a lot of attention over the weekend is the debate over uh, Pat Buchanan. And, uh, you know, I don't mind people debating. A lot of the people that are trying to claim that Pat Buchanan is an anti-Semite, they're bringing up uh, comments from 30 and 40 years ago. 
And I, I find these these remarks completely unpersuasive. But I don't really want to get into a back and forth because I recognize that reasonable people can uh, can disagree. But in light of uh, the announcement last week that Pat Buchanan is going to be retiring from his syndicated newspaper column after a half century as one of the most influential populist conservative voices in the whole country, I've been on such a Pat Buchanan kick. I have gone back and read all of our old email correspondences. I have I'm trying to think of something to send him for his retirement because he didn't email me back the other day, which is pretty rare, which has me a little worried that he might not be in the best of health right now. So I know he likes white wine. So I would normally send him some white wine. But if he's having a health issue and I don't know that to be the case, but that's my fear. If he's having a health issue right now. Um, I don't know, maybe he's abstaining from alcohol. I don't want to send alcohol. He's such a history buff, but he's probably got every history book in the world. He's such a Reagan and Nixon groupie, but he's got all sorts of stuff from Reagan and Nixon themselves. So I'm not sure what I could send them. So I'm trying to give some thought as to what I could send over to him as sort of a good luck with your retirement. But one of the things that I've been doing is searching all of the Internet and all of my personal archives for all sorts of great Pat Buchanan audio and video. So I come across this wonderful video, and I shared this on my Facebook page at uh, facebook.com slash Fan of Pat Buchanan's roast. And it was done for charity. I think it was for Spina Bifida. It was on C-SPAN. It's hysterical. It is absolutely hysterical. One of the shame uh, shames in watching it, though, much like watching the William Shatner roast from 2006, is that so many of the people that were so funny and so full of life and so full of energy are no longer with us. One person who's still just as energetic and vivacious now as he was back in 1991 is then-Congressman, future Speaker of the House, now former Speaker of the House, Newt Gingrich. Here was Newt Gingrich uh, in just a quick snippet of his roast of Pat Buchanan. Crossfire, you know, is essentially the Nixonian tradition carried to television. You remember the old days of television? Some of you are old enough. Remember what television talk shows used to be like? Slow, genteel, complete sentences. <laughs> People allowed occasion to have an entire paragraph. And then Pat brought all of the skills that Nixon had taught him. And he went on TV. And it was unbelievable. He brought the equivalent of L.A. street games to CNN. And, I mean, that, that wasn't that funny, that clip. But it, the whole remarks are quite funny. And if you want to see them, you can go to my Facebook page at facebook.com slash moranofan. That's facebook.com slash moranofan. And I am very close to making my way through my email every day. It takes me five or six hours to make it through my email. But I said I feel like Sisyphus. Because as I'm going through my email, people, I'm responding to email. And when I respond, that gets a response. So I'm like Sisyphus pushing this boulder up the hill that whenever I think I'm making progress going through my email, I just get a whole bunch of new email. So my friend Obi Murray made some suggestions for how to manage the email situation. And I may have to implement some changes because... I think what I'm doing now is unsustainable. It's unsustainable in terms of productivity and time. But if you want to email me, I will read it eventually. Frank.Morano at uh, WABCRadio.com. Let me say hello to Fred in Garfield. Hello, Fred. 
Hello, Frank. Uh, I got a neighbor who has a cat for nine years, and he could never train the cat to stop clawing his couch. But then a, a neighbor... A neighbor of his told him to get an empty bottle of Windex and put some warm water in it. And when the cat's claw on the couch, squirt him on his body. In two days, he trained the cat. No more problem. All right. Well, that, that's good to know. I mean, we don't have that problem at the moment, thankfully. But um, it's good to keep in mind. And I'm sure you're helping a lot of people that are listening that might have a similar problem. All right. We are going to talk with some folks that say you should have a lot of children. And we have commendations coming up in just a moment. Until then, help control the pet population. Get your dog or cat spayed or neutered. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano. side of midnight, whether it's 9 o'clock in the morrow, 10 o'clock in the morrow, 2 a.m., 3 a.m., whatever it happens to be, we say good morrow. All right. Um, We're going to do commendations in just a bit, where I give a pat on the back to people that deserve a pat on the back. And uh, while I will not be giving them a formal commendation, the uh, most commendable behavior that's on my brain is the... Uh, what's going on in Suffolk County today, where uh, my sister-in-law, Sharon, and my co-brother-in-law, James, are now the parents to a beautiful baby boy by the name of uh, Eric Christopher. So uh, very excited, very excited for them. And uh, Carmine's excited to be an older cousin. He doesn't really seem to have much of an understanding of what that entails, but we keep telling him that there's a better shot if um, he ever needs an Oregon of finding someone that's a match now that he has a new first cousin. So still the lone grandchild on the Morano side, but now on the O'Brien side, now he's one of one of three. As uh, I was telling my sister the other day, not at all special anymore. He comes over to his grandmother's house. She makes him clean up the house and do chores. He's like Cinderella now. All right. Um, a lot of you have been patiently holding so I want to take a couple of quick calls before we get to commendations. You're kind enough to call to call and hold for a while. The least I could do is say hello to a few of you. 800-848-9222. Let me begin with Carol in New Jersey. Hello, Carol. Hi there, Frank. I so admire Paul Pelosi because I don't think I would have been that calm, as calm as he was on the phone. But he did uh, receive a, a head injury from this. Oh, yeah, he could have died. He could have died. Yeah, sure. Yeah. But I, I think the police handled it well because they could have shot him down, but they didn't. Well, that's what uh, John Bonzoff is is criticizing. He says they should have shot much more quickly, especially as soon as he refused to put that hammer down. Yeah. I'm not going to second-guess the police handling of this. Uh, thank you, Kyle. I am second-guessing the 911 operator's handling of this. Again, I'll concede the fact that there's a lot I don't know, 
about how these 911 calls work and that sometimes maybe it's about just extending the conversation and some saying things that might seem nonsensical. But it seemed to me that she really didn't get it. it seemed to me she didn't know who Nancy Pelosi was. It seemed to me she didn't get that this was an old man trying to give her a code. Psst, I'm in some trouble here. It seemed to me she, when she said, all right, well, let us know if you change your mind. I'm listening to this. I'm saying, what's going on? Um, 800-848-9222. But again, I, I, maybe this is part of their training. Maybe they're, she's doing something else. She's trying to send police there at the same time. I'm, I'm reluctant to second guess anybody in a crisis situation like this. And look, it could have ended up much worse. Could have ended up much worse. All right. 800-848-9222. Joe is in Ron Konkama. Hello, Joe. Hey, Frank, how was your weekend? It was great. Thank you. I appreciate you asking. I hope yours was good, too. It was good. It was busy. I originally called in around 1 o'clock, one fifteen, but I was walking into work. I didn't want to be rude to you and the people I work with, so I clicked off. I was originally calling about what you were talking about. I did not watch that video. I refused to play it in my house. Uh, I didn't want my family or kids to see it. I told them I didn't want them watching it. I think it's adding more fuel to the fire. As far as what you were talking about, about cops being uh, African-American cops being as racist as white cops could be, um, I tend to believe that because, you know, uh, when they arrested that gentleman, um, he wasn't listening. And I think they were trying to prove a point. Um, As far as pay-wise, what you were talking about, Suffolk County Police Department, and, uh, you know, um, they do get paid a lot, but I do know a lot of Suffolk cops. And... uh, they say, you know, it's a real tough job, you know, Frank, because when you oh, pull absolutely, somebody- which is why I think they should get paid a lot. And I, and to yeah. be clear, my point was, I think you'd see fewer incidents like this if all police officers were paid the way Suffolk cops were paid. Well, I agree with you 100 percent. And now uh, also proceeding to what you were talking about, the Pelosi thing, um, I think uh, the cops did handle the situation correctly by not shooting the guy. But I think... Um, when he was on the phone, like you were talking about with Star Trek, he was talking in code. I, I think the uh, 911 operator should have done. I mean, I have a neighbor. The kid called 911. He was five years old and hung up, Frank. And the next minute, we saw 15 something right. cops in front of him. Right. So have a great night, hey. Frank, and be safe and say hello to everybody in your family. Thanks, Joe. Appreciate it. Take care. And I want to be clear, just uh, I don't want to go back on the Memphis situation because, you know, we'll move on and it's going to be a depressing show if we spend. Four hours talking about a man murdered uh, on video, or at least manslaughtered on video. But um, what I cited was that Harvard paper, it it did it not say what Joe said it said. Joe said, uh, you know, I agree with you that black cops can be just as racist as white cops. No, this Harvard paper and David in, in uh, the Bronx's anecdotal observations and kind of my anecdotal observation is that it's very possible not for black police officers to be just as racist, but for black police officers to be worse, worse than white cops. That's what I was bringing up, which is very counterintuitive, right? And again, I'm not sure what the solution is other than better training, but it's certainly worth noting, right? 800-848-9222. We're going to get back to your calls on anything you want to comment on in just a bit. But first, it is time for... The Other Side of Midnight presents... 
commendations. Ah, yes, time for us to give a pat on the back to people that deserve a pat on the back. I think that um, there's no shortage of good people in the world. And there's so much negativity in the news that if it comes time, when it comes time at least once a week to showcase people doing something good, why not do it, right? And thus is the case with the FDA. I have been very critical of the FDA over the years, but I think this is a good thing they did. The FDA is easing the blood donation ban on gay men after decades of restriction. Gay and bisexual men in monogamous relationships will no longer be forced to abstain from sex to donate blood under federal guidelines that were announced Friday, ending a vestige of the earliest days of the AIDS crisis. This has gone on way too long. I've always said this. They test all the blood. They test it not just for AIDS, but everything or every, every known thing. And this new approach eliminates rules that target men who have sex with men and instead focuses on sexual behavior by people regardless of gender that pose a higher risk of contracting and transmitting HIV. So uh, I think this is a great step by the FDA. And FDA, I do commend you. I must also commend Brandon Say. Uh, This is a real hero. This is the man who disarmed the Monterey Park mass shooter less than a half an hour after the massacre. And he's now being honored by uh, one of the cities out there with a medal of bravery. Well deserved. This guy helped wrestle the gun away from the shooter at a dance studio. Um, This is really, this is something that takes a lot of physical courage. And a lot of wherewithal. And I give Brandon Say all the credit in the world. He's a real hero, and I'm proud to give him a commendation. I want to give, there was a lot of noteworthy people that died this week, and all of them could have gotten a posthumous commendation, but I don't want to make this, you know, a radio obituary. But I do have to mention Dr. Jack Ravel. This is a guy you've probably never heard of, but this is a man who literally saved North Carolina from nuclear disaster. Dr. Jack Ravel disarmed two hydrogen bombs that accidentally fell near Goldsboro during the Cold War. So, and what's so sad about this is, this was this gentleman was in the military, was in the Air Force, I believe, and he spent a lot of time cleaning up nuclear accidents. And they think that the exposure that he had to nuclear bombs might have actually cut his life short. I don't know that they're saying that with certitude, but they but this is what they believe. This guy was just 25 years old in 1961. And it had been raining and snowing uh, outside of Goldsboro, North Carolina. And there was a hole. So the, the there was a crew had been digging in the swampy ground outside of Goldsboro, North Carolina. And Jack Ravel climbed out of this muddy hole in the ground, holding a gray sphere the size of a volleyball against his chest. 
And he was in charge. At only 25 years old, he was in charge. And when he and his men finally found what they were looking for, Jack, Jack, Jack Ravel, was the one who got to climb up the ladder and bring it out. Almost immediately, Jack flew back to the Air Force Base in Ohio. He landed in the late afternoon, went to bed early. The next morning, he took a shower, sat down at his table in his apartment, and he started to write a letter to his parents, who hadn't heard from him for more than a week. It was only then that the magnitude of what he'd done started to set in. Lieutenant Jack Ravel had just located and defused two nuclear bombs that accidentally fell out of a B-52 bomber over eastern North Carolina. This story sounds like something out of a movie. It's real. It is not fiction, and it's been well-documented. And over the last decade, more and more of it has been declassified, thanks in part to all the presidents and vice presidents that are keeping classified material at their homes. That's not true. But due to the work of um, an Air Force veteran by the name of Joel Dobson of Greensboro, who first heard the story years ago, and he knew that he had to write a book about it. And so he wrote a book uh, called Away Message, in which he chronicles this whole thing. And uh, it's a fascinating story if you look at what happened. But the fact that this young man, at only 25 years of age, was able to disarm these bombs and save North Carolina. I mean, it's wild. Absolutely wild. So, and he did a lot of other things. He earned the Bronze Star during the Vietnam War. And then after he was honorably discharged from the military, he went on to earn a PhD from Oklahoma State University. He had a lengthy career as a consultant, statistician, would go all over the world. He was an active member of Mensa. And he started telling others about disarming bombs and how they could do it. And they say that, um, you know, again, as I alluded to, his exposure to nuclear bombs over the years hurt his health. In 2018, for instance, uh, the one reporter was talking to him, and at that time he was going for a blood transfusion every two weeks because uh, his body wasn't making enough red blood cells. He was also taking expensive prescription medication to control this very rare disease that he had at the time called MDS, which was a precursor to leukemia. And the doctors that were treating him, they all told him that this disease was likely caused by his exposure to radiation. So... um, He is a remarkable man, and the last few years of his life have been very difficult health-wise for him, and um, he lived in an assisted living facility, but uh, he's going to be missed. The more we learn about the story, the more fascinating he is, and I'm glad to see finally he's getting some just due after uh, a lifetime of service to our country. And to North Carolina. So if you're alive right now in North Carolina, you can thank Dr. Jack Ravel. I want to commend Massachusetts. Massachusetts has been named the best state in the entire country to raise a family. This is thanks to WalletHub. They scored 51 weighted metrics across five 
categories. Health and safety, availability and quality of medical care, uh, uh, crime rate, road safety, infant mortality, education, child care, and once again, Massachusetts topped the charts, helped by a second-place score in education and child care and a high health and safety score. Congratulations uh, to you, Massachusetts. Great place to raise a family. I've never been to Massachusetts, believe it or not. I'd like to go one day. I want to give a commendation as well to both the AFC champion Kansas City Chiefs and the NFC champion Philadelphia Eagles. I'll tell you, whoever wins the Super Bowl, that's an incredible thing. But to be able to just win your conference and make it to the Super Bowl, that's a great thing. Just to be the AFC champion or the NFC champion is a remarkable accomplishment, especially with the extra game of the season now, a grueling 17-week schedule, and then the playoff schedule being what it is. And uh, both of these teams have had to deal with some injuries and make some improvisational changes. And you got to hand it to the players and the coaching staff and the ownership of both teams. Stuff like this doesn't just happen. You don't make it to the Super Bowl with dumb luck. And got to give them a a lot of credit there. All right. I want to give a commendation to Oscar Burrow. Oscar Burrow is a six-year-old boy who is in the process of climbing 12 mountains in the U.K. in a bid to raise money for charity. I think this is great. This is great. A 12-year-old boy, um, and he is pushing himself to the limit of what it's like to, um, you know, be able to do this. I think that's absolutely phenomenal. And I also want to give a commendation to Laura Carney. Laura Carney had a great relationship with her father. Unfortunately, her father uh, passed away. But before he passed away, in 1978, he wrote out a bucket list. Now, I, I'm not, I, I don't know how I feel about a bucket list for me, right? I feel like I, I have too many to do lists as it is. But some people, this is really important to. And they put a lot of stock in. So he was not able to fill that, finish all these bucket list items before he passed away. Well, his daughter, Laura Carney, who was born the year that her father wrote this bu- bucket list, has completed her father's bucket list. I love it. He was only alive uh, for 25 years of her life, but they had a great relationship, it seems, and she was able to complete her father's bucket list that he wrote while he was alive. I think that's wonderful. It's a great way to honor your parents. It's great. But not as great as what Arfin Jones has done. He donated a kidney to a stranger after his own daughter received her own life-changing kidney donation from a stranger. So he joined this living donor uh, program in the hopes of giving his daughter a kidney. But it turned out he was not a match from his for his daughter, who at 19 years old needed to have both kidneys removed. So 
he found it. She got a kidney and he wanted to pay it forward and give someone else a kidney. And he did. Someone else that he was a match to. And I think that's a great story. I think, uh, by the way, we're trying to get as many living donors to give kidneys away as possible. We're going to do an upcoming whole kidney show coming up. Some people have been writing me looking for kidneys. One or two people have been writing trying to give away kidneys. And we want to try and connect everybody as best we can. So if you're looking for a kidney, um, email me, frank.morano at wabcradio.com. I am keeping a list of people that are looking for a kidney. Or if you want to give away a kidney, email me. We're keeping a list on that front as well. It's a great thing. And honestly, as I've said before, you go straight to heaven. You really do. It's really, you could do whatever you want with the rest of your life. And you're still going to go to heaven. You save a stranger's life. I mean, come on. That's that's really, really an impressive thing. And you immediately get the moral high ground in any room you're in. You know, I, I have a friend, uh, Danielle. I've talked about her before. She could be a little annoying. But you know what? Everybody puts up with her because she gave a co-worker a kidney. Saved his life. What are you going to say? All right, Danielle. Time to go home. You know. uh, I want to give a commendation to Sakara Zahi Hawass. I hope I'm pronouncing his name correctly because he led this incredible team of archaeologists that have discovered the a gold leaf covered mummy that inside this area that had not been opened for 4,300 years, the mummy, which are the remains of a man named Hekashepes, is thought to be one of the oldest and most complete non-royal corpses ever found in Egypt. It was discovered down a 50-foot or 15-meter shaft at a burial site south of Cairo, where three other tombs were found. One tomb belonged to what they call is a secret keeper. The largest of the mummies that were unearthed at the ancient necropolis is said to belong to a man named Knum Dejef, a priest and inspector and a supervisor of nobles. And another uh, belonged to a man named Marie, who was a senior palace official given the title of secret keeper, which allowed him to perform special religious rituals. So um, this is very exciting. This is a major, major discovery. And they're already learning a great deal about the ancient Egyptian culture. And uh, hats off to all the archaeologists responsible for this. Finally, I want to give a commendation to Eric Finkelstein. This is a man after my own heart. He's a New York man who has set a world record for eating at the most Michelin-starred restaurants in a single day. This is phenomenal. This is phenomenal. Eric Finkelstein, 34. i got to try and do this maybe with pizza, right, or sushi, something I really like, right? Maybe the most New York pizza shops in a single day, something like that. I, I think of something. Um, Eric Finkelstein embarked on a gut-busting mission to eat at 18 of the acclaimed eateries within a 24-hour period. He did it, and it is a world record. Eric Finkelstein is a world record holder. This fella has two other world record uh, world records under his belt. Both of them are related to ping pong. So uh, this is a guy that I need to befriend, especially that he's here in New York. So, All right. Um, do you think it's a good idea to have a lot of children? We're going to get into it. I read this fascinating 
article in the uh, an op-ed in the New York Post over the weekend. And the people that wrote it, Simone and Malcolm Collins, the author of the Pragmatist Guide series, they basically said, this is the headline, the world needs more big families like ours for humans to survive. And I think it's really interesting from a demographic perspective, from a cultural perspective. My wife is one of nine children, and she has been very clear that she will never have nine children. And uh, I would love to have a whole bunch of children, but I found that having one requires an enormous amount of money, time, and energy. And I chase after my 14-month-old and struggle to pay for, uh, you know, anything. And I think, oh, my, can you imagine multiplying that by 100%? So uh, we're going to talk with Malcolm Collins in just a minute about what exactly his idea is and uh, and why. 800-848-9222. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. Collins singing there. I was trying to remember which of my friends had requested this song for their birthday, but honestly, I'm so backed up with birthday bumper music requests that uh, I I have lost track. So my apologies to whether it was uh, Peter Spencer or Nick Iacono or um, Lance Rhea. I think it was Lance Rhea because today is his actual birthday. But what do you do... When it comes to commemorating birthdays, if you have nine children, right? My mother-in-law was in that same position. My wife is one of nine, and uh, they range in age, right? Uh, so I think there's a maybe a 16-year disparity, maybe a 15-year disparity from the oldest to youngest. So what she would do is she would get everybody on their birthday, she would make them their favorite dinner. They got to choose the, the food. So if you wanted breakfast for dinner... You could have it. If you wanted uh, pizza, you'd have pizza. You know, whatever the case may be, which I thought was very clever. But that is one of the many logistical 
hurdles that can be involved in having a family that includes nine children. What we're seeing now is a couple of things, both in the United States and abroad, countries like Japan and Europe. They are, well, Europe, I realize, is a continent, not a country, believe me. They are dealing with a problem of the population not replacing itself. Some people don't say it's a problem. We'll get into that. But there's also been a movement that has grown as a backlash to that, as a reaction to that. It is called pronatalism. And it's a movement that believes humans must maximize reproduction in order to stave off economic and cultural decline. One couple that is uh, at the vanguard of the pronatalism movement are the Collinses. Malcolm Collins is kind enough to get up early with us. He is the author of The Pragmatist's Guide to Life, Relationships, Sexuality, Governance. He also wears a lot of other hats. He happens to be the founder of pronatalist.org. Malcolm, thanks so much for getting up early with us. Hello. It is so wonderful to be here. And just for clarification for your listeners, those are all different books. The one that deals with this topic is The Pragmatist Guide to Crafting Religion. And, you know, I, I would stress because I think when a lot of people hear about declining birth rates, they're like, oh, this is just a developed country thing. But actually, um, you know, as of a few years ago, all of Central America, South America and the Caribbean combined fell below repopulation rate. It really the only countries that are still above repopulation rate are the the most desperately poor countries in the world. Um, and, and they're mostly isolated to like a handful of countries in Africa and Oceania. Um, and to stress also, the, the, what our movement is striving for is not to maximize the world's population. You know, we don't want humanity to grow forever. However, we, we, and we also don't even think that it's possible to prevent the current population crash that's about to happen. But we are trying to make people aware of it so that we can begin to build solutions to it because um, it happens a lot faster than you think. You know, I used to work in Korea and right now at the current Korean fertility rate, 0.8, that means for every 100 Koreans, there will be 6.6 great grandkids. So we're looking at like a 96% population wow. crash within That's the next where, century. Just repeat that number again. For every 100 South Koreans, there's going to be 6.6 grandchildren or great grandchildren? Great grandchildren. Wow, that is extraordinary. I mean, that is yeah. That's wild. All right. So, um, well, well, it depends. I mean, if the fertility numbers uh, go to zero point seven, which they're expected to this year, it'll be four point three. I mean, these numbers keep declining, and this is what a lot of people don't think. They see the fertility numbers declining, and they think that there's some level at which they level off, at which they stop declining. And we haven't seen a single country hit that point yet. And Korea. Uh, was um, in the 90s where we are today in America. That's extraordinary. Now, a couple of things here. We're talking with Malcolm Collins, author of the Pragmatist's Guide series and the founder of uh, pronatalist.org. So um, you mentioned South Korea. I mentioned Japan and the United States. Where else in terms of countries around the world is this problem particularly pronounced? Where is the problem of the population not replacing itself the worst? So it's interesting. I think it's really um, probably not fair to think of it in terms of countries, 
But I would think of it in terms of populations, because if you look at it at a country, like at the same way if you look at it at a global level, it hides the problem. Where it's the worst is cosmopolitan cities in developed countries. Um, basically, cities are almost sterilizing to people. So, you know, what, if you're in Canada, you know, that would be Ontario or Toronto. Or in, or in the U.S., it's New York, San Francisco, and London. You know, wherever you go, if you're in a major developed city, you will have almost no kids. And this is a – well, it, it – it, it, I mean, I'm, I'm conservative-leaning myself, so this is on the, on the positive side for me in the long term – but um, a lot of studies show that the way a person votes is about 60% heritable. If you systemically delete all of the population that is uh, you know, amenable to moving to cities, which is usually progressive leaning, then you're going to have major political shifts that we can even calculate right now by looking at the heritability of things and then looking at birth rates um, in, in voting patterns worldwide. That, well, that's really interesting. So. In theory, a city like uh, like San Francisco or uh, or Los Angeles, a city that has a history of uh, very liberal democratic voting patterns, because of the manner in which the population is playing out, they could actually be, I don't know, unreproducing themselves out of political dominance. Yeah, exactly. But it's it's. I mean, for a while, cities have not reproduced themselves. They basically draw anyone with like a progressive mindset from the world uh, uh, families that are still reproductively healthy. So um, it, it's, it's like a filtering event that's happening all around the world because cities just aren't set up in a way right now where it's really financially possible to have large families. And I think this is something that people forget. If you're looking at any population, you know, um, like consider your friend group, I would say to your listeners. If a third of that friend group has no kids and a third of that friend group has two kids, then for them to just stay stable, the final third of that friend group has to have over four kids. And you just see very few people having over four kids, especially in in cities. Hmm. Um, uh, Why is this? Explain to folks why this is problematic for cultures for countries for cities for societies a lot of a lot of people as i'm sure you're aware in uh, certain think tanks they say hey look this is not the worst thing in the world the fact that there are fewer children being born now that means there are going to be resources like schools and classrooms and an infrastructure that was set up for a larger child um, population that will now be able to cater to fewer students instead of uh, having 45 children in a first grade class, you're going to have 20 children in there and maybe some children will be able to get some extra individual help. I'm sure you've heard that argument way more than I have. What do you say to that? uh, That is unfortunately not what happens when populations shrink. So when populations shrink, tax bases shrink. And we unfortunately have set up basically the entire developed world's economy as a pyramid scheme. Um, we have heavily leveraged every leverage means take out debt against every level of the economy from our cities to our states to our nations to our individual companies. And taking out debt is great when something is growing, but it is horrible when something is shrinking. To understand why, imagine you're making an investment of $10. $5 of that is debt. $5 of that is equity. If it grows, if it grows to 15 then you've doubled your equity investment. But if it shrinks, if it shrinks to five, you've literally lost your entire equity investment. Um, 
And cities, if you look at Detroit's a good example of what happens when a tax base starts to shrink and when a population starts to shrink. Detroit, over a period of, I think, about 30 years, lost around 40 percent of its population. Um, and when that happens, what you do not see is like huge houses, you know, where people can live and nice things. Everything starts to collapse. You see urban blight as far as you can see. You see classrooms with roofs caved in. You see drinking water that no one can use because um, it, when, when something is declining on average and everybody knows it's declining on average, like if you buy a house and you know for a fact that this house will be worth less in the future, it doesn't lose like 20% of its value. It loses almost all its value. And that's why in Detroit you saw houses selling for like $1. When that happens, there's no incentive to maintain the infrastructure. Um, and I, I think, you know, homeowners are aware of this, but I think many people who have never owned a home don't know how much money goes into just keeping infrastructure at like a base level looking presentable and basically working. Um, so, no, what we would likely see is basically urban blight as far as you can see, similar to like blight porn pictures you can look up about Detroit. <laughs> okay. Um, by the way, just so folks understand where you're coming from, we're talking with Malcolm Collins. He's the executive director of the Pragmatist Foundation, among many other claims to fame. You, uh, What's your family situation like? What have you and your wife done in terms of child-bearing uh, and child-rearing? Yeah, well, I mean, I think that uh, modern problems require modern solutions. Um, my wife would be technically infertile, but we were able to, you know, through medical technology, freeze a number of embryos. And we've been having a kid every year and a half. Um, we're at three right now, and we don't plan to stop until it's medically we're forced to. Now, there are going to be some folks. Uh, I was promoting your appearance with friends of mine and family members. And uh, I was talking about the sort of the pronatalist movement. People can learn more about yeah. it at pronatalist.org. And there's folks that say, well, look, you just really can't afford to have a lot of children nowadays. It takes so much, not only a lot of time, but it takes a lot of money. And I, I have a, a one-year-old, and I could certainly empathize. It's, all of my money is, uh, as soon as my paycheck comes, it's out the door for a lot of child care expenses. What do you say to people that say, all right, maybe it's a, it's a nice thought and maybe dem demographically it makes sense, but parents these days just can't afford to have as many children as parents of years past. What do you say to that, Malcolm? Well, I mean, here's the paradox of this situation. It's very expensive for rich people to have kids, um, but it is not expensive for, for <laughs> most people to have kids. If you look at fertility rates within and between countries, so like within a country or between countries – Actually, poorer people have more kids on average, and it scales very linearly until you get to the highest levels of wealth. You do start to see birth rates go up again at the highest levels of wealth, but if you talk about a developed country like the United States, um, you don't get above for repopulation rate again until a family is making 500000 to a $1 million a year. So it, it's sort of this paradox where people say they can't afford kids, and yet the less money they have, the more kids they seem to be able to afford – and what's really interesting is that if you look historically, I mean, uh, you know, I think that we we look at like this 1950s period, which is really an unrealistic economic situation where we were just like draining the rest of the world's resources to, to prop up an unstable mm -hmm. economy. But if you look before that, 1800s, 1700s, people were having tons more kids in much, 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 much worse conditions. Um, I, I think that the idea of of Kids. I mean, consider your wife's parents, right? 
I would almost be certain that they were in worse economic conditions when they were raising those nine kids than you are today. hundred percent, hundred percent. But one of the things that I could tell you from my wife and at least some of my siblings-in-law is that they do feel like maybe they were a bit, uh, I don't want to use the term deprived, but they did have a, a very tough time because their family had to uh, do with a lot less materially than a lot of their peers had to uh, had to do. Yeah. Yeah, uh, oh, absolutely. And I, and I think that this is this is, uh, you know, one of the reasons um, where, uh, you know, our society is declining, because historically there was this mindset where, like, we believed as a society that a human being, that one of our kids would prefer to exist under trying circumstances than not exist. <laughs> and I think today that mindset has shifted due to right. the increase in negative utilitarianism in sort of the global mindset which is now, um, you know, people sort of subconsciously believe that it's better not to exist than it is to exist without existing in luxury. The um, one of the places that we see people encouraging culturally a great deal of procreation tends to be in a lot of religious communities. For instance, there are there are some mm-hmm. Muslim uh, countries that are that are still producing exponential amounts of children. And I've heard the same can be said of Mormons, even in places in the United States, places like Utah. Is that accurate? Are the Mormons and the Muslims doing their part to prop up the population? Uh, So I'll, I'll read a quote to you right here. Between the 1980s and the 2010s, Iranian women reduced the rate at which they had children from 6.5 to 2.5, faster than the pace of the one-child policy in China. Uh, And that's from an academic study. Um, And Mormons, uh, now this is harder to pierce out, but uh, we did some digging into the data, and it looks like they might be below repopulation rate right now, or they will be within the next five years. Um, There are some religious communities that have been able to keep their birth rates up, like the Amish, uh, but they're kind of like air-gapped from society, uh, if, if people are familiar with that analogy. Um, so, no, well, okay, so it's a complicated question. Religious communities do have more kids compared to secular communities. However, it is not a panacea, and it doesn't appear to fully protect them against hmm. birth rate collapse. What we are really seeing is religious communities and religious extremism is just more common in poor countries Um, and in countries with levels of extreme poverty, you know, sort of going back to what we were saying before, that's where you still have really high birth rates. Um, The problem, of course, being that I think our goal uh, as like a society is to ensure those countries no longer are in extreme and desperate poverty. Um, And and so that's that's not a positive thing. Now, uh, I mean, the reason we wrote The Pragmatist Guide to Crafting Religion is I do think – Something like religion is the solution to this whole problem. Uh, in the modern world, in a, in a prosperous country, you really aren't rewarded for having more than two kids. It used to be, you know, you had more kids that was more hands on the farm and the kids directly right. impacted sort of your economic condition. Um, today, you're not going to really get rewarded with happiness or social prestige for having over two kids. So the only reason to do it is if you have some sort of like exogenous motivator. And normally that is religion. That's the, the, the core exogenous motivator in today's society. Um, and so uh, that's why we wrote like the guide to crafting religion, because I think we need to think about what did we throw out uh, as a society as we secularized uh, 
And I think we're seeing this across the secular world right now, where we're realizing a lot of the things we threw out. You know, you look across religious communities, uh, you know, you, whether it's Ramadan or, or, or Lent or the Feast of the Firstborn, you know, Passover, uh, these like arbitrary fasting rituals. Like we threw all that out in like the 80s. And now today the secular world's all on like their fastings and their juice cleanses because they all realize, that, oh, yeah, it actually does like help mm-hmm. to fast occasionally and arbitrarily deny yourself stuff because it like strengthens the pathways, that, the inhibitory pathways in your prefrontal cortex. So, yeah. I could go deeper on this, or Malcolm. Uh, uh, we are almost out of time, and you got to come back. Maybe we'll do a full hour because I have pages worth of questions that I want to ask you about. So, um, let me ask you maybe the million dollar question: uh, Why is this happening? Is this happening for uh, cultural reasons? Uh, you mentioned these cosmopolitan cities. One would think that uh, that's leading to uh, women putting off childbearing a little bit later in, in life and having fewer children, staying in the workforce longer. Uh, other people might point to things like the ease of uh, birth control and abortion. Other people might point to what's generally considered positive things like a decrease in teenage pregnancy and uh, underage sex, of uh, that sort of a thing. But from your perspective, from your studies on this, why are we seeing developed countries struggle with population? Well, because, I mean, I think we need to think about what it means to be a developed country. What it means is that the number of kids you have does not increase your family's wealth. I mean, historically, that was true. The core reason you had a lot of kids was so you had more hands on the farm, right? Um, And I think that we as a society are unaware of how recently this shift happened. You know, that only really stopped being true a couple generations ago. And culturally, there was still a lot of inertia towards having a lot of kids being normalized. But um, that sort of became unnormalized over time as soon as people sort of intergenerationally began to realize, I don't really need to have a lot of kids to be happy and fulfilled. Um, And it's it's such an interesting way for our civilization to sort of start collapsing. Uh, just sort of people realizing, oh, I guess I, I don't need, we used to fight over like land and territory. And, and you know, today you look at something like the war in, in Russia and the Ukraine, both of which are countries that are desperately below repopulation rate. And they are fighting over land, which means nothing when their populations aren't <laughs> replenishing themselves, right? Um, and and, and they're, they're killing off an entire generation. I mean, I think that this is how slowly it takes the world to realize that things have changed. Wow. You know, we now live in a world where the most valuable thing is a human being. And that, that's a good thing in a way. Le- uh, no doubt about it. Le- last question, Malcolm, and you've you got to come back. And I'm encouraging everybody to check out yeah. your website, pronatalist.org. We've seen some attempts by government to address this. I think it was South Korea, which you alluded to earlier, which gave uh, the whole country the day off, essentially, uh, to and encouraged them to go out and uh, and have children. Uh, I think Japan has tried some similar things. My sister Claudia proposed, and she's not a you know a policymaker or anything. Thank goodness, but she proposed a government-sanctioned happy hour once a year, where the government would pay for everyone's drinks one night a year to encourage them to couple up and uh, you know and do their thing. What do you think can be done, if anything, beyond people voluntarily doing this, either from an economical perspective or a, a legislative one, to encourage people to repopulate? So it, it's funny. I, I think uh, your 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 sister, I think you said, 
um, is, is pretty astute in what she suggested, because what a lot of people jump to at first is they say, oh, let's give handouts to people who have kids. Except this has been tried extensively. Actually, this last year, Hungary spent 5% of their GDP on this project, and they only got fertility rates up 1.6% by doing that. That's nothing when you consider that like China's fertility rate year over year declined over 13% last year. So, um, you know, handouts don't really seem to motivate this. Um, it, some people say things like, well, abortion bans. Well, Hungary tried an abortion ban, um, and it helped for one generation, and the next generation fertility rates crashed mm -hmm. because it created the stigma that having lots of kids was only for, like, poor people with low self-control. So uh, was it Hungary who did the abortion ban? No, Romania did the abortion ban during the communist dictatorship of the 1980s or 70s. Anyway, um, so like we've tried a lot of things and government interventions just don't really work. The only interventions that seem to work are um, uh, cultural ones like uh, I think this was Armenia hmm. where the um, their version of like a pope, the, the Orthodox uh, head of the patriarch, what are right. they called? Patriarch, patriarch said that I will be every child's godfather who's born within this time window and then it, it gave the wow. birth rates actually went up pretty significantly um so uh you know there are cultural solutions to this and and again that's why we wrote the pragmatist guide to crafting religion right. and, because and we're we'll, trying to disseminate these cultural solutions and we'll encourage everybody to check out uh, pronatalist.org malcolm fascinating conversation thank you good luck with all those kids all right, let's hit book again. Thank you. 800-848-9222. If you go to the Prodenatalist building, there's a giant statue of Nick Cannon outside. That's their, that's their patron saint, Nick Cannon. I'm actually I'm sort of joking about that. All right, 800-848-9222, straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. Could have danced all night, could have danced all night, and still have begged for more. I could have spread my wings and done a thousand things I've never done before. I'll never know. The great Frank so Sinatra singing this song from My Fair Lady. I'll tell you why I wanted to play this song today. Is because, you know whose birthday today is? It's not just Lance Rhea's birthday, which is significant enough. Today is the birthday, and maybe we'll talk about this a little more next hour, of one of the greatest actors who has ever lived, and really my favorite, one of my favorite actors. Not my favorite, because you got Shatner, you got a couple others, but he's... In my top ten of all time, Gene Hackman. Gene Hackman. And if you've ever seen, and Gene Hackman is incredible as an actor because he's so versatile, so great in dramatic roles, so great in comedic roles. And one of the best roles that he was ever in, as far as I'm concerned, is a film that I still watch and almost hurt myself laughing to, and that's uh, The Birdcage, which is based on the... Uh, French pay, uh, French play La Cage aux Folles. And in The Birdcage, he plays a conservative senator. And there's this very funny scene with Robin Williams and uh, Nathan Lane and uh, uh, Diane Weist. And they're singing to this song. 
And I was trying to picture any instance in cinema that uh, Gene Hackman has ever actually sang. And sure enough, that was the only one that could come to mind. And I even, I think, did a quick Google search, and that was the only one that I could find. Thankfully, though, we got the Frank Sinatra version, not necessarily the Gene Hackman version. All right. Your calls. All next hour, 800-848-9222. And the return of the $1,000 Minute. We uh, skipped that on Friday because I thought it was kind of weird to stop a Holocaust discussion to play a game. But it's back today. Until next hour, in the words of the great Bob Grant, your influence counts. Make sure you use it. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano. Tomorrow, Mr. and Mrs. America and all the ships at sea. Let's go to press. Hey, have you heard a story? Maybe you heard it on the radio. Maybe you saw it on television. Maybe you read it in the paper. Where, obviously, we know what fentanyl is, right? I mean, if you don't, fentanyl is uh, it's an opioid. It's, uh, it's terrible. It's really, it's, they say, depending on the, the, the concentration of it, it's about a hundred times, at the very least, more powerful, more lethal than heroin. It's also, unfortunately, pretty cheap, and it's also one of the major consequences of having an unprotected border. But uh, it's killing a lot of people. We are seeing more people die every year from drug overdoses than died in the entire Vietnam War. Think about that. Now we know fentanyl's bad, and we know that's the driving force behind uh, the drug overdose deaths. We know this. Okay. Put that aside. And those of you that don't hold on other issues, I'm happy to talk to you. So if you want to continue to hold, I'll get to you. One of the things that we hear all the time in radio and on television is some concerns about police officers, parents, and others handling fentanyl and not ingesting it, but just handling it, just touching it, and suffering from the effects of fentanyl. Well, in fact, I think Marlena Shivo, when she was here, even mentioned this in the context of Halloween uh, fentanyl made out to look like candies, the danger of a child touching it by accident or a parent touching it by accident and suffering from the uh, effects of it. Well, I'll be honest, I don't know anything about fentanyl. I've never done a drug in my life other than alcohol. And um, I didn't know that this could be was true or not true. 
Well, this has now been thoroughly investigated, thoroughly researched, and thoroughly debunked. If your news outlets around the country continue to push fears about police overdosing from brief exposures to fentanyl, this has been widely reported. Latest example occurred last weekend. New York Post, WABC TV, Channel 7 in New York. They all um, they all published this. Now, where does it come from? It came from a press release from the Correction Officers Union in New York. So this has been debunked. Medical professionals have stressed that such stories like this simply don't add up. So the latest example occurred uh, in New York, but it's been going on all over the country. The Corrections Officers Union that sent out the press release that Channel 7 and the New York Post both based their stories on, they said that an officer was sent to the hospital after a brief exposure to the opioid fentanyl, despite wearing gloves. And I have to tell you, when I read that, even I, who had not done this full vetting at the time, even I said, whoa, 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 that doesn't add up. Are they really saying that this officer was hospitalized from a brief exposure to fentanyl, even though he was wearing gloves? I said, I said to myself as I was reading the paper, I said, I don't believe that. I said, there's no way that happened. So a whole bunch of people in the medical profession have said opioids are not well-absorbed through the skin except through prolonged exposure. Never mind a person wearing several layers of gloves. So what is occurring? When officers believe they're overdosing after brief exposure, right? Because I don't think the cops are lying, right? I mean, I think if they say that they think that they're experiencing a drug overdose or something like that, they believe it. Symptoms they experience, and this was so interesting to me, symptoms they experience are more consistent with severe anxiety attacks from seeing the drug, probably in part as a result of headlines suggesting that such interaction can be lethal. So we have created, we the media, have created this horrible feedback loop where you have these frightening headlines printed all over the place about fentanyl exposures. The police officers read these headlines. They see fentanyl, they touch fentanyl, And then because they've been bombarded with headlines saying that they're going to overdose, they have a panic attack when they come across the drug. More scary headlines are then printed and then it goes on and on and so on and so on. So it was interesting. Neither the New York Post nor uh, WABC TV, which is not affiliated at all with my home base radio station, WABC Radio, neither the Post nor Channel 7 responded to requests for comment about this. And CNN uh, also asked the the, uh, Correction Officers Union if they had a toxicology report, which I think is a reasonable thing to ask for, or other information to support the press release. So the guy that called, received a spicy call from the union spokesperson who declined to say whether he had such a toxicology report. 
quote, I think anyone who questions this is going to be severely proven wrong, he insisted. Ooh. So count me among those who is questioning this. And if you are a police officer, understand if you touch fentanyl, you are not going to suffer an exposure. You are not going a drug overdose. You're not. By the way, I want to thank a bunch of the listeners that reached out to me. And if you want to reach out to me via SMS text, you can do so at uh, 8168-MORANO. That's 8168-MORANO. The word that I was struggling to find, and again, this is what worries me about uh, the possibility of senility, is when I can't think of a word. It just kills me. But the word I was struggling to find about why there are two cats in my garage right now is recuperate. My wife is recuperating two caps cats in our garage after they've been fixed. Now, why are we talking about this uh, fentanyl situation? Well, one, I think it's important for people to know to not freak out if they see fentanyl. But the other reason is because I'm wondering what's going on with Havana syndrome. And if you want to comment on either of this, you you can. 800-848-9222. You remember the when Havana syndrome was a big deal? 800-848-9222. The U.S. Embassy in Cuba was supposedly attacked. It was closed for six years after a whole bunch of staff got sick in what the CIA called anomalous health incidents. And approximately two dozen American diplomats in Havana first heard piercing metallic Kissing in 2016, they began experiencing nausea, vertigo, headaches, all sorts of other ailments. But doctors haven't figured out what could have been making them sick. Immediately, what do you do in this day and age, right? Immediately, what do you do? You blame the Russians. There was no evidence of it, but that didn't stop people from blaming the Russians. Turned out not to be true. That was investigated thoroughly. There were theories like the, uh, including the use of sonic weapons launched by foreign actors like Russia. CIA dismissed that. They say most cases of the Havana syndrome actually stem from other pre-existing conditions. Still, the CIA says some of these cases are unexplainable. I had on uh, Mark uh, Polymeropoulos, a veteran CIA officer who was dealing with this and he was really he's been very public about his battle with this and i don't think he's lying at all i mean this guy strikes me as a patriot a guy that has spent the entirety of his life his adult life serving the country and he was on with me about a year and a half ago on this program and he explained what he experienced so i was visiting russia um i was uh, i was on a 10-day visit as december of 2017 um i was at that time, the, uh, the uh, uh, deputy chief of clandestine operations for Europe and Eurasia, so that Russia was part of my portfolio. So I was visiting the embassy. I was going to see um, our you know, esteemed ambassador, John Huntsman. I was actually going to meet with Russian government officials as well. And it was, uh, it was one night. I you know, woke up in the middle of the night, staying at a five-star hotel in Moscow, only, only several blocks from the embassy. Um, and I had an incredible case of, of vertigo. You know, I've been in Iraq and Afghanistan. I've been subject to, you know, all sorts of, you know, I've put my life in danger, I've been shot at. But this was the scariest moment of my life where the room is spinning. I had a terrible headache, tinnitus, which is ringing in the ears. Oh, and sure. it started this medical journey that even to this day has lasted. You know, I still have, I, I've had a headache for almost 
you know, three and a half years straight. Um, and, you know, it's something that caused me to retire uh, uh, because, you know, the headaches were, were so severe. And, um, you know, and, and ultimately it was, a, it, was a, it was a pretty awful experience and something that, uh, you know, I wouldn't you know, wish on my, my worst enemy. Now, that's a real description, right? This is a patriot. This is a, a tough guy who's been everywhere. He's not making this up. But they have been trying to figure out what this is. And so far, there's no evidence of anything. Now, obviously, I'm not questioning Mark's ailments. Those are real ailments. But there's a new investigative podcast out, and maybe we'll invite the journalist who's behind it, Nikki Wolf, on this show. But it's called The Sound, Mystery of Havana Syndrome, and it explores what we know about this mysterious illness and what questions remain. This whole thing has left diplomats and healthcare professionals totally befuddled. So that's one theory, that it was a secret sonic or ultrasonic weapon. Another theory is that um, it's electromagnetic energy of some sort or ultrasound waves. Some people have said it's an unidentified weapon. Some people say it's a mosquito gas or toxin. Other people say it's crickets. Crickets or stress. Many Havana syndrome uh, victims report hearing an odd noise before suffering symptoms. Some heard clicks. Others remember a loud noise or whirring. One heard rolling marbles. Could they have actually heard chirping crickets? We don't know. The, um, there, there was a review by the State Department a few years ago, a secret group of science advisors who've been meeting since the, world, since the Cold War called Jason. And Jason analyzed audio recordings, and they decided that the most likely source was the Indies short-tailed cricket. They weren't saying the crickets caused the illness, just the noise. But that wouldn't explain why U.S. officials still heard noises and then fell ill while traveling abroad. And Jason had another theory about what caused the symptoms. Psychogenic illness. In other words, listen, mental stresses that cause physical symptoms. This is a theory that's been repeated many times over the years. Other, other folks say it's a mass psychogenic illness. I don't know what it is, but I do. I, I'm skeptical of the supersonic weapon theory, okay, because that if they could, if we could find a way to blame Russia for attacking our diplomats with supersonic weapons or anything else, you better believe we would. That would help. That that would make we, the uh, the cash that we're sending to Ukraine. We'd be sending it in gold plated barrels, right? We couldn't send it fast enough. So I'm. I don't think it's a weapon. I do think that there's a possibility that it could be mental that it could be stress-based. And I don't know why, but when I read that story about these fenton- the, the fentanyl fiction, it did remind me of what's going on with this Havana syndrome. And I, I, I don't know that I'm going to have a chance to listen to this podcast, but I do want to interview this uh, Nikki Wolf because these men, and I'm sure some women, are genuinely sick, and I don't think anybody's faking it, but I do wonder... If the brain in these people 
is causing a physical manifestation of something. Not saying it's not real, but I, I the mind is a very malleable, malleable thing. Dr. John Sarno, that was his whole his whole life's work. He passed away, but his whole life life's work was healing back pain naturally, and he believed that you almost all of back pain was a mind body connection. And I do think that there's something to this. I do think that there's a psychological and or mental connection with your physical well-being. And I think you're seeing that with the the police officers that are dealing with what they think is a drug overdose when they're clearly not overdosing. And I think it might even be a play here with the Havana syndrome. Quite a mystery. We don't know. Curious what you think. 800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-9222. If you read uh, Napoleon Hill, Napoleon Hill is a fascinating writer. He wrote a book called Think and Grow Rich. And it's about a lot more than how to make a lot of money. But it's about the brain and it's about the mind. And how the mind is a very malleable thing. And how you hear something like, oh, exposure to fentanyl is going to cause a drug overdose. Exposure to fentanyl is going to cause a drug overdose. Eventually, your body, it brings it out. So, all right. 800-848-9222 if you want to comment. I know a lot of people have been holding on various subjects. We'll try and get to uh, everybody. Askar is in Manhattan. Hello, Askar. Yeah, how you doing? Uh, you're talking about the population decrease, right? Um, right. Before on the show. Yep. Um, yeah. Thanks for having me on. Um, we, we have to uh, we have to address stuff with the government, which the government is doing to increase the population. Um, I had called before and I, and I spoke to the guy, and it, you know, out of coincidence, this topic came up. Um, even even the courses like uh, that that people are taking, like uh, for the jobs. Like I took a CPR course, and nowhere in the course did it have anything to do, like um, did it say anything about, like, uh, for example, if a woman's having a baby, how could it facilitate the situation? Should she go get her care? Should she go give birth to the baby? Stuff like that that could help um, increase our population. You know, that we, we we have to be more aware of that. You know, to increase our population, it's uh, you know, it, it, it's essential. I know it's expensive, but we we need to increase our population. And like the doctor that you interviewed, he was saying some stuff that that. That he's doing, he's um, he's saving his embryos. He's having a, a baby a year and a half, every year and a half, stuff like that. You know, thanks for having me on. Thanks for um, uh, you know, I put also on the on the show. I'm I'm part of that Facebook group. I put also on the show, like you know, like they got to do something with the CPR because they're not they're giving us the course. We're getting certified, but if a woman has a baby or her water breaks, they don't they don't have nothing in the teaching there. Um, the procedure, the formal procedure. How to have the, uh, facilitate that young lady to the EMTs arrive for her to have that baby. All right, okay. hey, that's a great point, Askar. Hey, thanks for listening. Thanks for sharing that and uh, giving your your perspective. I appreciate that. Eight hundred eight four eight ninety two twenty two. Jeff is in Queens. Hello, Jeff. Hello, Frank. Hi. Two things. Um, should you watch the film? I watched it uh, under the video of the, of the police brutality. Uh, I'm not going to watch it again. That would be like, like you said, a snuff attitude. I watched it once. All right, next. The French, Frank. 
I think the problem there is the word the, not the French thing. It's like, say, any group, the Italians, the blacks, the Jews. That's the problem. You can't generalize about a group. Am I saying that right? Well, I, I know that's exactly what AP was saying, but the French don't seem to mind. Okay, but no, but you and I agree that you can't say the and they, 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 they use a whole group that being obviously overgeneralizing. Well, well stereotype. I mean, I think it depends, right? I mean, I think if you um, if you were to uh, talk about, um, I, I mean, I, again, it depends on what kind of sentence that you're you're. Tra- no, nobody should be overgeneralizing or over stereotyping anything, right? But I, I don't think that if you're talking about the Italians, just saying the term the Italians, I don't think that's the least bit offensive. Do you? I thought that everyone agreed that when Trump said the blacks, that, that was an offensive phrase. No? I, I, I don't know. Look, I, I mean, I think the way that Trump said it was uh, maybe maybe uh, a little ham-handed. Like, you know, he says, I've got a great rela- gr- great relationship with the blacks, right? I, right. Mean, I mean, that's a little um, – it's not really – it's not accurate, number context. one. You know, context, so, right, right. But I think just to say that the blacks or the French or the deaf or the disabled is inappropriate, I think that's um, – I don't think that's true. I don't think it is. No, deaf and disabled are not, not good examples, right? But, okay. Well, but those, well, that's, it, what, that's what the AP was citing. It, that, those were the specific things that they wanted eliminated. Don't say the deaf. Don't say the disabled. Don't say the French. They said that you're kind of marginalizing – those groups by referring to them that way. Right. Let me say, last, last thing, let me say, Frank, after you gave your opinion one day about uh, Mr. Mr. Buchanan, you, you then followed up the next day with that interview. That was very fair of you. Oh, well, uh, which which interview um, which interview were you talking the, about? The, the book, the book around the history of anti-Semitism in Germany, Germany. Oh, well, I mean, honestly, I know, you know, a bunch of people did write to me about that. Uh, but, um, look, I think that... Um, it just worked out that Friday happened to be International Holocaust Remembrance Day. And so whether whether we would have done that segment on Friday, whether Pat uh, was retiring last week or not. And, you know, and, and, and again, not to make this another whole Pat Buchanan discussion, but uh, I don't think that any of the um, description of Pat Buchanan as a Holocaust denier, I don't think that's fair at all. I went back and watched some interviews that he did about what's supposedly the most – uh, anti-Holocaust book that he has, Churchill, Hitler, and the Unnecessary War. And he, he does this interview, and anybody can watch this, it's on C-SPAN. And he does this interview, and the interviewer asks him, what do you think of Adolf Hitler? The first words out of Pat's mouth are, he's evil and a satanic figure. So I don't know how you can say that and then say that he's a Holocaust denier. So it was not really intentional on my part, Jeff. It just kind of worked out that way. It certainly wasn't. Uh, I, I wasn't saying, oh, let me do a... A, a segment to show that I care about the Holocaust because I did right. a segment on Pat yesterday. It just kind of worked out that Friday was Point. International Holocaust Day. Point taken. Thanks, All right, sir. Jeff, thanks for the call. 800-848-9222. We got a couple of Joes in New Jersey. Let me begin with Joe in New Jersey. Hello, Joe. Hey, Frank. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. Um, I'm a pharmacist uh, regarding the fentanyl. Like, I don't know about the, uh, the Havana syndrome thing. That always... That always uh, intrigued me, and you know, it, it seems like there could be something to it. But regarding the fentanyl, um, it is like the most potent of all, like the painkillers, like uh, prescription painkillers. There's some newer, like synthetic stuff on the street now. I'm hearing about, but in in terms of like touching it with a glove, I I wouldn't be too concerned, like how you were saying about the guards. But 
inhalation, um, I, like when you saw the, I don't know if you saw the video about the uh, California trooper who pulled over a guy and there was like some dust in the back of the car. They were like transporting it. I believe that that, that trooper like went to the ground because, um, you know, it was fentanyl inhalation. And uh, they brought him back with uh, the naloxone. So um, it's the physical exposure. If it's touching for a short amount of time, especially with gloves, you don't think that would cause any ill effects. But if you're breathing in something, that's a different story. It's measured in micrograms. It's in millions of a gram. So, like, you know, you could picture a milligram tablet being, like, almost nothing. Then I'll go to the microgram level. So, yes, you know, I think if you just were to, you know, come in contact with it briefly – uh, but especially with gloves, not a concern. But the breathing, uh, that like so you were like kind of downplaying exposure. It, it's still um, I wouldn't be confident going near it in any regard, just because if for someone naive to painkillers, like a heroin addict, you could come in contact with it and they'll they'll continue to breathe. They're just they built up such a tolerance. But for like the average person who's on no painkillers at all, the, the, just the, the barest minimal. You'll stop breathing. You won't even know it. Your lungs will just stop breathing and shut you down. Yeah. Joe, if you have uh, any additional information on that that you could email me, I'd be really interested in learning a little more about that. I'd love to go out and have a beer with you and talk about anything. Hey, but, uh, uh, sure, sure. Great, great. Uh, you have my email, right? Uh, what is this? Frank? Uh, yeah, I'm going to put you on hold. Kenneth will give it to you because we have another Joe in New Jersey that I want to get uh, get to. Give give Joe in New Jersey my uh, my email, please. Uh, the other Joe in New Jersey. Hello, Joe. Good morning. Morning. I want to I want to debunk what some of the people have been saying about the fentanyl. My wife had serious cancer, and I swear we never put her in a nursing home. I nursed her all but the last five and a half weeks of her life. And I had her at home, and I was given a fent- I was handling fentanyl all the time. Finally, the hospice nurse said we could switch to a fentanyl patch, which would last probably a couple of days. So I switched to the fentanyl patch, and of course, I had to take the, the piece off the, the, uh, the uh, exposed, you know, the... Sure. You take it off, and then you put it on a various part of a body. Now... I'm in my mid-90s, and I'm still going strong. This is after 18 years. I never had any problem at all. Well, so whatever, it, pill, whatever pills I had left, they turned into the police department back in those days. I wouldn't flush them down well, the toilet. Or yeah, so I'm sorry uh, for what you had to deal with with your, your wife. You sound a lot tougher than the uh, the average 90-something-year-old, uh, Joe. But uh, So what you're saying is... Uh, kind of what what I was saying, which is that these stories of uh, police officers or others just touching fentanyl and experiencing a drug overdose from brief exposure, it doesn't make sense. It's probably more likely an anxiety attack. Well, as they say, I did it for, for months. In fact, uh, I, they wouldn't give me too strong a, a prescription because sometimes you get a breakthrough and have to give it some uh, Percocets in between. Every, I'd be awake all night long, every couple of hours or something. But that's why the hospice nurse finally said, let's try the patch. It's supposed to last a couple of days, which is what we did. So I was handling that all the time. I never had any uh, any ill response from it. Well, so, good. Uh, yeah, I'm glad you shared that, Joe. I appreciate that. Thank you. 800-848-9222. Those of you that are holding, if you want to uh, continue to hold, we'll get to you. But for the rest of you, uh, we are going to give you an opportunity to win some money. You want to win $1,000? Then be the seventh caller right now 
to 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. And if you are indeed the seventh caller, then we're going to give you a chance to answer 10 trivia questions in 60 seconds. If you can do it, uh, we're going to give you $1,000. Simple as that. 800-848-9222. This is The Other Side of Midnight. $1,000 minute straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. Welcome to the program dedicated to the free and open exchange of ideas and of opinions and to the principle that uh, somebody's going to say these things. It has to be. This, of course, is not only the theme to Rocky, but for so many years was um, the opening top of the hour theme to the Bob Grant show. Uh, And, you know, it's funny. I think a lot of people probably hear this song and think of Rocky. The only thing I think of is the Bob Grant show. Uh, so this is another Lance Rhea suggestion in honor of his birthday. We let him choose a lot of the bumper music. So uh, congratulations to him because uh, it's his birthday. Hopefully all of his other wishes come true. All right. 800-848-9222. Um, we're going to give somebody an opportunity to win some money. Let me read you this SMS text message. I'm half asleep. And think you said La Cajo Fall for Gene Hackman. It was the birdcage. Now, first of all, I did not say La Cajo Fall. I said the birdcage. I said it was based on La Cajo Fall. And you know what I, I don't understand is why, if you're admittedly half asleep, are you so confident in what you heard that you're going to reach out to me to correct me? Wake up! If I, you know, I thought I heard something on the radio the other day from a host that I listened to. And I was all set to message this person, say, okay, no, it wasn't 1988, it was 1984. And you know what I did? I double-checked before I sent it. And you know what? The host was right. I don't understand these people that text first and then and then will check. Give me a break. Uh, another person writes, on the subject of Havana Syndrome, Polymeropolis was a liar. Deep state lies to make Trump look bad. I don't think he's a liar. I don't. I think he genuinely was sick. I don't know what's causing the sickness. I suspect it might be some sort of acute stress or something along those lines. I really do. But um, especially a lot of the the initial so-called Havana syndrome attacks were prior to Trump being president. So I don't buy that at all. All right. Without further ado, it's time for... The Other Side of Midnight presents It's the $1,000 Minute Answer 10 questions correctly in one minute And you could win $1,000 Here's your host, Frank Marano uh, Thank you, let us say hello to Chris in Beth Page Hello, Chris Frank, how we doing, pal? I'm doing well, how are you doing? Doing good. You know, I used to call you a lot with presidential trivia. I kind of missed those days, to be honest with you. That was a lot of fun when you did the 
presidential trivia in the Seinfeld. Yeah, you know, um, it, it, maybe we'll bring it back. It, you know, it, certain things I feel like just kind of run their course. And I felt like um, I, I felt like the, the, we were getting a lot of the same questions. We were getting a lot of the same people. I just felt like uh, after a year or so of doing it, it kind of ran its course. And I always like to try and do new new things. But maybe we'll bring it back for at least a, a limited edition, okay? Okay, pal. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, I remember you. You were quite uh, quite a sharp presidential trivia person. So that yeah, that means you I love, love you, it. Yeah, I love presidential trivia. You, you're going to be in good shape uh, this time around. You ready to go? Ready to roll. Yep. Okay. What is the official language of Japan? Japanese. Who was the president of the United States at the start of World War II? Franklin Roosevelt. Who directed the films Schindler's List and Saving Private Ryan? Spielberg. What country was Elton John born in? England. What instrument does Yo-Yo Ma play? Either the cello or the violin. It's the cello. We'll give you the cello. How long is an Olympic swimming pool? Uh... 100 yards? 100 meters? No, I'm sorry. It is 50 meters. 50 meters. 50 meters. 50 okay, meters. yeah. It, well, all right. Well done, though. You got up to question six. I'm going to put you on hold. Kenneth is going to give you a consolation prize. All right, Chris? All right. Thank you, Frank. Thank you very much. Appreciate that. Mm. Hey, uh, speaking of presidents, we are celebrating the birthday of the great Gene Hackman. I I really can't stress enough how much a Gene Hackman fan I am. Now, Gene Hackman has kind of retired from, from acting, and I think he was doing some some writing. I think he wrote some novelization novels um, after retiring. So I don't know what his health is like. I would love to have him on, uh, on the radio sometime. He uh, was um, really an incredible leading actor, an incredible supporting actor, an incredible dramatic actor. An incredible. He didn't do a lot of interviews when he was active, and it was almost twenty years ago. Now he gave a, an interview to Larry King, where he announced that he had no future film projects lined up, and he believed his acting career was over. And then in two thousand eight, while he was promoting his third novel, he confirmed that he had retired from acting. And he was asked during a, an interview with GQ in twenty eleven if he would come out of retirement to do one more film said he might consider it if I could do it in my own house, maybe without them disturbing anything, and just one or two people. He did briefly come out of retirement to narrate two documentaries related to the Marine Corps. One one was called uh, We the Marines. One was called The Unknown Flag, Razor of Iwo Jima. But um, he does really enjoy really he does really enjoy writing novels. So he's written a bunch. Apparently. So good for him. He has been married twice and he has three children from his first marriage. He's a Democrat um, and was very proud to be included on Nixon's enemies list. But he was pretty friendly with Ronald Reagan. I don't know if they knew each other from Hollywood back in the day, but Reagan had him to the White House. And um, he's spoken fondly of Reagan publicly. You know, it's funny. He was the first choice to play Hannibal Lecter in Silence of the Lambs. He was also offered the chance to direct the Silence of the Lambs. 
And he actually, speaking of presidents, this is what I was going to say initially. He turned down the part of Franklin Roosevelt in the film Pearl Harbor, which then went to John Voight. And uh, not always not always a straight and narrow guy. Back in 1946, he's 92 years old today. And in 1946, they arrested him. He was arrested for stealing candy and soda pop from a candy store. There you have it. All right. Uh, oh, actually, no. I said he was 92. He's 93 today. 93 years old. Can you imagine? God bless him. But uh, I'm I'm a fan of almost everything Gene Hackman has ever done. And there's nothing he's done that I haven't liked. It's maybe he's done a couple of pictures that I haven't seen. I mean, who else can go from being in the Royal Tannenbaums and Welcome to Mooseport and the Birdcage to playing Lex Luthor in Superman? Now, call me foolish, call me irresponsible. It occurs to me that a 500 megaton bomb planted at just the proper point would, uh, would destroy most of California. Millions of innocent people would be killed. And the West Coast as we know it would fall into the sea. Bye-bye, California. <laughs> Hello, new West Coast, my West Coast. And uh, there he was, Lex Luthor, the evil genius. But he's very capable of uh, being on the other side of the tracks as well. And you remember him in The French Connection. I He was Popeye Doyle. I like the French Connection sequel, too. I saw both. And you know what I liked about it? They called them The French, not French Connection. The French Connection. And, yeah, he was uh, great in one of the great cop movies of all time, one of the great crook movies of all time, too, The French Connection as Popeye Doyle. Have you ever been to Poughkeepsie? You've been to Poughkeepsie, haven't you? I want to hear it! Come on! Yes, yes, I've You've been there, right? Yeah. yeah. You sat on the edge of the bed, didn't you? You took off your shoes, put your finger between your toes and picked your feet, didn't you? That's it! Yes! Won multiple Academy Awards, multiple Golden Globe Awards, multiple um, Screen Actors Guild Awards, been nominated a bunch of times in every category. He always just struck me as a a fascinating guy. He said, you know, the person that made him want to be an actor was Jimmy Cagney. And you could kind of see it, right? You could kind of see, based on some of his stylings, how he did sort of emulate... Uh, Jimmy Cagney from time to time. And just to go to show you, just to show you how different certain aspects of history could be. He was the first choice, supposedly, to play Mike Brady on the Brady Bunch. Can you imagine? Can you imagine? And really just a tremendous inspiration in that he stayed so busy up until his later years he was still averaging two films a year in his 70s. In 2001 alone, he starred in six. There's a wonderful film which no one has seen. I think it's wonderful, but I showed it to my wife. She found it underwhelming. It's called Twilight. And whenever people, uh, whenever I tell people about it, they think I'm talking about uh, the vampire movie. But no, there's a great film with Gene Hackman, Paul Newman, Susan Sarandon. It's called Twilight. It's great. It's really, really well done as far as I'm concerned. So happy birthday, Gene Hackman. Wishing you many happy returns. And you know who he was friends with before, long before he became famous? Dustin Hoffman.
And Dustin Hoffman and Gene Hackman actually roomed together in New York in Gene Hackman's one-bedroom apartment on 2nd Avenue and 26th Street. And Hoffman slept on the kitchen floor. And originally, Gene Hackman offered to let him stay a few nights, but Dustin Hoffman wouldn't leave. So Gene Hackman had to take him out to look for his own apartment. So when they were roommates, they would go to the apartment rooftop and play the drums. And Dustin Hoffman played the bongo drums. Gene Hackman played the conga drums. And uh, they said they did it. I don't know if this is true or just the kind of thing that they say to bus chops. They said that they did it out of their love for Marlon Brando, who they had heard played music in clubs. They wanted to be like Brando because they were such big fans of his. So uh, I think that's interesting. All right, 800-848-9222. By the way, I got to bring this to your attention, and then I'll get back to your calls in a moment. Sarah Michelle Geller, a.k.a. Sarah Michelle Gellar, she was on M. Night's uh, Shyamalan's podcast, and I didn't even know M. Night Shyamalan had a podcast, but M. Night Shyamalan's a famous director. He directed The Sixth Sense and so on and so forth, and she said something that really resonated with me, because if I have one rule in our house, if there's a film being seen, I have no tolerance for spoilers. And you see, like a lot of times we'll discuss films that are 40, 50, 60 years old. I don't allow people to say share spoilers. So I uh, I really appreciated this comment. This is Sarah Michelle Gellar talking to M. Night Shyam- Shyamalan. She's married to Freddie Prince Jr., who played Donnie Crane on the William Shatner series, Boston Legal. Here's Sarah Michelle Gellar on the uh, M. Night Shyamalan podcast. Did I tell you the most embarrassing story ever? Oh, no. Ever? Did you tell the ending? No, no, not of that movie. Um, when, okay. <laughs> Which one? Uh, wait, wait. Spoiler alert. Yeah. <laughs> be hurtful. It's not. No, I mean, to my relationship, it almost was. Oh, but, oh. no, it's a, it's a Freddie Prinze story. We've all seen Sixth Sense here. Oh, my God. Well, don't you? No, oh, I won't. Oh, I'm not going to give it away. No, I'm We're about 20 minutes into the movie, and I said something just like it popped out, like, oh, is that... Uh-huh, uh-huh. And my husband didn't see a movie with me for 15 years. <laughs> right, rightfully so. So, I don't, uh, by the way, I misspoke. It was not on uh, a podcast. It was on the Graham Norton show, which is on a British uh, talk show. But she said, because she spoiled something in The Sixth Sense, that... Her husband wouldn't watch a film with her for 15 years. I don't blame him. I don't know where these people were raised that think it's an acceptable thing to be spoiling movies like this. I mean, if there's one thing that should never be tolerated, you know how in Star Trek they have the prime directive, which is you can't interfere with the development of pre-light speed civilizations? I live. My prime directive is you cannot spoil movies, no matter what. No matter what. And you know what I hate when people do? When people will say, when you'll be talking out about a movie with someone, right? And you're excited and they're excited and you, you say, oh, I'll remember that. And then someone, and then you, you tee it up for someone else, a third party. And you said, yeah, it's a story about ba 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 And they said, oh, I'm not going to see it. Just tell me what happens. No, no. You go and see it. If you are interested in enough to want to know the ending, you go and see it. I'm not going to deprive the artists that made this work of art so that you can be spared 90 minutes. No. 
Uh, big shout out to my friend uh, Joe Borelli, who has never seen The French Connection. Is it any surprise then that he is uh, uh, not raising more of a stink about renaming something for Elijah Muhammad? I'm just teasing about that. All right. Uh, Ellie is in Baltimore. Hello, Ellie. Oh, hi, Frank. I saw Sarah Michelle Geller this past week on some uh, talk shows in the U.S. Talk plugging her new series. Oh well, I, see, I haven't caught her, but uh, you know, I, I, I just hope she's learned her lesson. Yeah, I understand. Now, I think when I lived in the Washington area, they filmed parts of Against All Odds. The subway scenes uh, were filmed filmed somewhere else, but the outside scene was filmed in D.C. I have to Remember? be honest. I, I I know that that is a a great film. I have never seen it. I have never seen Against All Odds. I'm embarrassed mm-hmm. to admit it. But I um I am I'm familiar. That, I know that there are noteworthy subway scenes, but I've never seen it. Well, well, the post office pavilion at the time was there, and then Trump made it. He bought that building where the post office pavilion was. I believe it was. Yeah, he made it a hotel. I haven't been to D.C. in so long now. I live in Baltimore. All right. Well, I, pre- I appreciate you listening, Ellie. Thank you. Well, I tell people about your program because I love WCBM. Well, that's great. Thank uh, you. I was wondering of your background. Have you always been in radio or were you ever a disc jockey? Because you have a good uh, wide variety of information. Well, that's very kind. No, I was never um, – no, I never did music, right? I've always pretty much done – done talk and yeah my my entire professional career has been in uh, in talk radio i've done a little, little tv but uh, primarily just uh, just radio but uh, i'm glad you're i'm glad you're enjoying the show ellie please keep spreading the word for us so you grew up in new york i okay. did i did i'm uh, i'm a lifelong new yorker but i i'm i'm eager to get back to baltimore i want to visit babe ruth's okay. house again yeah, Baltimore's a good charming city i grew up there but it's changed a lot i i was living in and uh, what was I in? Uh, Prince George's County for many years. Okay. Is Broadway back uh, active now? Absolutely. Uh, bro- as back and as expensive as ever. Ellie, I'm going to run, but I appreciate right. you calling. We'll talk soon, okay? Sure. Bye. Thank you. That's a nice lady. Uh, by the way, I, I'm getting some good field reports about people in the Baltimore area really enjoying what we're doing. Uh, so big shout out to everybody at uh, WCBM, including Sean Casey, who you can hear as one half of the morning show uh, a little more than an hour from now. It does a terrific, terrific job. Now, I do want to mention the uh, if you want to join our Facebook group, you could do so. Just search Morano Radio Fans and Haters. But in terms of Gene Hackman, this is the last thing I'll say. If you're talking essential Gene Hackman, I think, aside from the films that I've just mentioned, Superman, French Connection, The Birdcage, not La Cage au Fall, The Birdcage, Royal Tannenbaums, if you're talking essential Gene Hackman, there are five films that you absolutely must need to see. Absolutely. Number one, and for some reason this film doesn't get the kind of critical acclaim that I think it should. Crimson Tide, when he plays the commander of the submarine, a nuclear submarine, the scenes with him and Denzel Washington, my goodness, is that good. The, the, the stirring monologue, the, the ethical questions, the moral questions, I love it. National security questions. And James Gandolfini's great in that, and actually Lilo Brancato's in that as well. Great, great role. 
Um, Crimson Tide, Unforgiven, great Clint Eastwood picture. Bonnie and Clyde, everyone always talks about Warren Beatty and Faye Dunaway, and with good reason, but Gene Hackman is terrific in that. Um, and then, in term, the, uh, if I'm picking two others, um, there's one, uh, uh, there's so many, there's so many. Oh, Get Shorty with John Travolta, also a James Gandolfini film. I'll make those my uh, my 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 four four okay because there's just too many. We'll get in a whole Gene Hackman riff. All right, eight hundred eight four eight nine two two two. We'll do fifteen seconds of fame straight ahead. The other side of midnight. It's the other side of midnight with Frank Morano. Theme, The Other Side of Midnight by the by the very talented Andy B. from Staten Island. And, uh, you know, I, you talk about some really sad news. Is uh, I was just informed seconds ago by uh, Kenneth and, uh, and Matt Blaze that Andy B., uh, who was kind enough to make this song for us and be a regular caller to our show, and a, somebody that called me for years on the radio, and uh, somebody that knew the New York radio market very well, it, that uh, unfortunately we heard from somebody in Andy's family that uh, he's just passed away. So that is a real uh, bummer. I, um, I don't think I ever met Andy in person, but I certainly feel like I did, because I spoke to him for so many years on the radio, and he was a great talent. Uh, and he loved uh, talk radio and um, was very generous with his time and uh, had a great sense of humor, as you could uh, as you could hear in all of his phone calls. So I have some more to say about that tomorrow. Obviously, he had uh, been very open with us about his battle with Parkinson's over the years. So I'm very, ha- I'm very sad to see that. So wishing him and his family the best. If there are any arrangements... Uh, We'll bring it to your attention if people want to go. All right. Uh, On that downbeat note, we're going to give you an opportunity to be heard for 15 seconds. 800-848-9222. Let me say hello to Mike in Montclair. Good morning, Frank. This is 15 seconds of fame. Go ahead, Mike. Sorry about that. That's okay. Good morning, Frank. Back in the 50s, I was involved in government experiments with crickets, known as the Jiminy Project. We also experimented with the pigmen. Eventually, both studies, uh, both studies were shut down because of the word or overuse of the word the. <laughs> Robert in Orange County. Hey, Frank. Good morning. Uh, I wanted to touch back on the, uh, on the fentanyl issue. Um, we don't know exactly where this fentanyl is coming from. It's not FDA, so we're not really sure of the potency and uh, and, and the effects that it has uh, due to absorption through the skin. 
So uh, please be careful while handling this stuff. Thank you. Uh, Scott in Brooklyn. Uh, good morning. Uh, great trivia question. Who was Mario Puzo's first choice to play Don Corleone in The Godfather? Uh, Rod Steiger? No. Frank Sinatra? No. Yeah, I give up. Danny Thomas. Really? Oh, I, I didn't know that, actually. Uh, I, at least I didn't think I did. I thought I knew everything about The Godfather. All right. Uh, those of you that we didn't get to, if you call back tomorrow, we'll try and get to you first. Um, my thanks to everybody that's listening. Tomorrow, we got some fun stuff planned. A.J. Jacobs and Ken Levine, Frank Moreno. Good day.